And now for something completely different. This is the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Let's do it. And welcome to the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. With you till 3 on this Wednesday as we help you get over the hump and towards the weekend. With plenty to do over the next few hours. Coming up, the latest in the Freddie Freeman saga. Plus, Baker Mayfield speaks out yesterday as the Deshaun Watson hearing continues. And which quarterbacks in the NFL have the most to prove this year? Plus, where, were, uh, where will Spencer Rattler fit in to the SEC this year? Arch Manning's impact on college football. And which of those programs will be, quote-unquote, back first? Rob Manfred speaking out about trying to fix Major League Baseball. And speaking of which, how important is it to have the ability to throw a baseball? We'll get to that coming up later on this afternoon. All that and plenty more over the next few hours. You can join the conversation throughout the afternoon. 843-721-9500 to give us a call. You can always text the show. 843-608-1734. Get to us on Twitter at Moro Middays. On Facebook at ESPN Charleston. Via email, studio at kirkmanbroadcasting.com or online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Head over there and click on our show page where you can leave a comment for the show. You can find the latest versions of the show podcasted right there, or you can even take the Morrow Midday Show with you wherever you go. Just simply stream us online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Ready until 3 on this Wednesday. Trent's on the seal wheels. Trent, what's going on? How are you? Look, I'm doing great. It's a beautiful Wednesday here in the low country. Got some rain yesterday. Sun shining now. We got a lot of sporting news to talk about. It's great. We're getting into the July month. Here we go. Yeah. We're close to football season. I'm feeling good. It's a beautiful Wednesday here in the Morrow Midday Show. Yeah. It'll be July, well, Friday, right? July 1st. Can't believe it's July 1st. We can play that clip over <laughs> and over again. <laughs> That's right. Where does the time go? Oh, my goodness, it's July. <laughs> July is, and we've done a ranking of the, the sports month. I think July is probably the worst sports month of the calendar year, right? We got nothing. All you have is baseball. Right. And then even in baseball, you have the all-star break, so there's no baseball for a week in July. Well, if FIFA had their head on straight, they would That's have scheduled right. the World Cup in a place where we could play it in the summer so we mm-hmm. could potentially have the World Cup during this, uh, dur- this month of July here. So thanks, FIFA. We appreciate you. Yeah, that would be fun. I'd actually look yeah. forward to that. Instead, now it's going to be during football season. People Nobody's going to yeah, People are going to have no idea what's going on. It's, that seems backwards. What a silly decision. So anyways, nonetheless, I still look right. People always say it's the downtime. Our, hard, oh, our jobs get so much harder. Hey, we sit here and talk sports for three hours. How hard can it be? 
Let me start with this. Uh, Freddie Freeman, you know, we have spoken a lot of things into existence lately here on the Morrow Midday Show. We played the audio for you Monday for Freddie Freeman and his return to Atlanta. He was very emotional. We played a lot of the clips. We talked about it. And I said at the time, if Freddie was truly upset with his agent, he should have fired him when the deal went down in March. If you were truly upset with how somebody handled your situation or treated you, because remember, people seem to forget this. Lawyers, same idea. They're working for you. Right? I know somebody who had to uh, deal with a situation with a lawyer. They, ah, I feel bad reaching out. Don't feel, they're working for you. Don't feel bad if you seem like you're bothering them. The lawyer's working for you. The agent works for you. You pay the agent. They're supposed to do what, you're, uh, what you say. And so if Freeman was truly as upset as he appears with how the offseason went down, I would have fired the agent immediately. Like, man, you screwed this whole thing up for me. And we talked about this Monday in the show. Well, yesterday afternoon after we got off the air, we got the news that Freddie Freeman has now fired his agent. Took a little longer, but once he went back to Atlanta this past weekend and those emotions stirred up again and he saw his old friends and the old fans in the stadium and thought, man, I do want to be here. I wish I was still here. And he opened up those wounds, and now the agent, gone. And right now, Freddie doesn't have an agent. He really doesn't need an agent. He just signed a six-year contract, and the agent gets, uh, you get your percentage up front. So the agent, for him, is like, all right, whatever. I, got, I squeezed all the juice out of that fruit anyways. All right, there's nothing more you're going to get out of Freddie Freeman. I mean, you could talk about sponsorship deals and commercials, but you get it, right? The idea, uh, the agent did his job, got a big contract for Freeman. He already got his 10%. He's good. All right, fire me. That's fine. Right? You don't need an agent for six more years anyways. I wouldn't get anything out of you. And Freddie Freeman now is going, for the time being, without an agent because, again, he really doesn't need one for a few years if he wanted to go without one. But he fired the agent yesterday. And so this is another step towards that idea of Freddie being unhappy with how things went in the offseason of how he truly did want to be in Atlanta. Now, with all of that said, I still don't have a ton of empathy for Freddie Freeman. The agent may have gone a little rogue. The agent may have misled Freddie. Maybe he didn't tell him exactly how dire things were or you know, uh, misinterpreted uh, the conversations with the Braves. But again, number one, the agent is working for Freddie. And also... Unless Freeman specifically said, like, I want to stay in Atlanta, period. You know, make sure that I get back to Atlanta. Then, sure, you could blame the agent. But if you say, like, get the best deal possible, get the longest deal, get that six-year contract, the agent's just doing what he's supposed to. And even if Freddie were to tell his agent in the offseason, hey, I want to make sure I'm back in Atlanta. Well, the Braves did offer a contract for five years, and what was it, $135 million, And Freddie turned it down. So I don't have a ton of empathy for him in this whole situation. Because as I've said throughout this whole process, I repeat it again on Monday, I'll repeat it again now. If you really wanted to do something, if you really wanted to be there, you would probably be there. You would find a way to get it done. You ever try to go on a trip? I'm going on a trip, so I hope that I don't speak this into existence. But you ever try to go on a trip and like the flight gets canceled? And maybe it's like a college graduation you got to get to? Or you're trying to get to a wedding? Or you're just trying to go on vacation? Whatever it may be and the flight gets canceled, and they can't get you out of the airport anytime soon, and you're looking at all different types of ways that you can still get to your destination. Get a rental car, drive cross-country, go to a different airport, whatever it takes. It's like uh, in Home Alone. Right? In the first Home Alone, when the mother's trying to get back home, she's doing whatever it takes. She gets back in the van with a polka band with John Candy to get half the way. She's selling uh, a watch to an old couple in the airport to buy their plant. You'll do whatever it takes to get where you got to go if you truly want to be there. She wanted to get home to her kid. 
She was going to do whatever it took. Right? If you truly want to get to that wedding, college graduation, uh, surprise party, wherever you're going, you think, man, I really got to be there tomorrow. I really got to get to Chicago tomorrow, wherever the destination may be. You'll find a way to get there, even if you drive all night. If you really want to do something, you'll find a way to get it done. If Freddie really wanted to be in Atlanta, he would have gotten it done. They offered him a contract that when you include taxes and everything else, he would have made more money uh, probably with the Braves than he would out in L.A. But he turned them down. And what did he sign instead? A six-year contract. And when it came to playing hardball with the Braves, what was the big difference? That sixth year. If he really wanted to be in Atlanta, he could have foregoed the sixth year. He said, that's ah, not that big of a deal. It's one year. It's a few extra million bucks. I'm still going to get $135 million. I'll still be under contract until I'm 37. That's pretty good. If he really wanted to be in Atlanta, he could have just signed the contract. The agent's not going to sign for you. That's on you, Freddie, right? And you turned it down. And you played hardball, and the Braves called your bluff, and now you're upset probably with the decision that you made as well or that you had a part in along with your agent. And I think Freddie should take some responsibility in all this as well. You fire the agent. That's the obvious move. But also, you probably should share some of that responsibility in that you had a chance to return. Braves gave you a fair deal. Compared to the deal you ended up signing, it was just as good. just wasn't quite as long. It was one year less. Right? That was that big of a deal to have that emotional return this past. Was it really worth That would be my question. Was it really worth the sixth year looking at how you uh, responded this past weekend and you returned to Atlanta? You really think this whole thing was worth trying to push for that sixth year? That was such a big deal when you've made millions of dollars in your career? But Freddie fired the agent yesterday. The other thing, too, is, you know, of course, when you go to Atlanta, the analogy I used was like uh, showing up at a wedding for an ex with your current significant other. And it opens up those wounds again when you see them up there and like, oh, that could have been us. When Freddie shows up in Atlanta, like, oh, this could be me every game coming here and talking to the same media and coming out and playing at this stadium and going to the home clubhouse instead of having to walk to the visitor's clubhouse for the first time. And because everything relates so well to Seinfeld, there was an episode of Seinfeld that was pretty similar in which Kramer and his friend Mickey went on uh, like a double blind date and there were two women. I think they were twins. No, they weren't. They just looked similar because they had different. They introduced their parents in the episode. So there's just two women that looked very similar, but they were good friends. And Kramer and his buddy Mickey show up, and they don't really know who to pair with who. They both look very similar. And they're both already seated at the table, and they don't know which side of the table they should sit on. Long story short, by the end of the episode, Mickey is marrying one of the women. And when Kramer shows up to the wedding with the other girl, as they sit down in the pew for the wedding, she gets up crying and says something along the lines of, Oh, Mickey, I can't handle this. And she goes running out. And then after Mickey gets married and he's walking down the aisle with his now new bride, she leans into Kramer and said, I wish it was you, as they walk out of the wedding. And in a later episode, it's revealed that they're quickly divorced afterwards. But the idea being, right, Kramer shows up with this one girl at a wedding for two of their friends, and she wishes she was up there. And she goes running out crying, kind of like Freddie Freeman showing up this past weekend in Atlanta, wishing he was still there as a member of the Braves and had to go running out of the media room crying. Pretty similar. Right, it opened up those wounds that, ah, man, I wish I was here. Just like if you showed up at that wedding and saw an ex-girlfriend, boyfriend, up there getting married and thinking like, oh, man. Right, reminds you of uh, how you wish you were still up there. And then if the person you're at the wedding with realizes this and they see some sort of look you're having, that's Clayton Kershaw on this whole thing, who issued comments after Sunday saying like, man, I mean, you know, you're with us now. We hope we're not a second fiddle. Just like your date at that wedding saying, like, hey, we're dating now. I, I hope you don't think like I'm second fiddle to the person up there getting married. right? And that's an issue as well.
and that typically ends to uh, leads to the end of a lot of relationships if you can't get past the previous person. And Freeman right now has to try to get past the previous team, the Braves. That's what Clayton Kershaw was upset with. Freddie Freeman had to address all this yesterday. He's firing an agent. That's like ending that relationship. You know what? This isn't going to work. I wish I was still with that person up there getting married. My Freddie ends the relationship because things didn't quite work out with that agent this offseason. And now for the Dodgers, you have this guy who seems to be unhappy. We can all miss things, long things, wish things were different. That's normal. right? But if you can't get past something, that becomes a little toxic. If you're so obsessive or wish you were there, you're so unhappy because of what you don't have. We could all miss something. We all miss things in life. Ah, I wish I still had that, or ah, I wish that person was still in my life, or whatever it may be. Ah, I wish I didn't leave that job. But when it affects your day-to-day, when it leads you to be as emotional as Freddie seemed to be all weekend, it starts heading towards the area. I'm not saying it's there yet, but where it becomes a little toxic. Like if you're in a relationship and you're still crying over somebody else, that's not a great relationship. And that seemed to be Clayton Kershaw's concern with his new teammate. Here is Buster Olney this morning on ESPN's Get Up talking about this whole situation. Uh, Freddie firing his agent, the emotional return, and then also what it means for the Dodgers. You have this guy in your clubhouse that seemingly wishes he was somewhere else after he just signed a six-year contract, and you're trying to go win a World Series. Here is Buster Olney this morning. So the emotion that you saw on the field over the weekend, yes, a lot of it for Freddie Freeman was gratitude for the response from Braves fans while he was with the team and then when he returned over the weekend. But in talking with friends of Freeman, they also believe that there was a lot of sadness and there was a lot of anger because his first choice at the beginning of the negotiations with the Braves uh, 16 months ago was to remain with the team. And in the end, he wound up with the Dodgers for a contract when you factor in deferred money, 57 million of the 162 is deferred and state tax, he actually got less money. So he makes the move on Sunday to dismiss his agents. Uh, he was listed yesterday as being self-represented. Uh, there are still conversations going on between Freddie and Axel, which he referenced in his statement yesterday. Maybe they patch it up, but he was very angry as he told friends with the Braves over the weekend with how this played out. Wow. I don't know if you know this part of it, but when you talk about Freddie Freeman and where he is now, how do things stand with him and the Dodgers? Yeah, and there were definitely Dodger players had their eyebrows raised a little bit by how emotional he was over the weekend. Uh, you saw the comment from Clayton Kershaw saying that he hopes the Dodgers are in second fiddle. Freddie told reporters yesterday he's talked to Clayton about that. And here's the bottom line, Ryan. As this is all playing out, the last eight games, uh, the three games leading up to the series in Atlanta, then the series in Atlanta, the last two games, Freddie's hitting 412. With a 487 on base percentage, slugging percentage over 700. In the end, as one evaluator told me yesterday, it really tells you just what an amazing hitter Freddie is, that he's able to perform while feeling this kind of emotion. Yeah, I mean, in, in, uh, the good news for the Dodgers is that it's not affecting Freeman's performance on the field. Does it make him such an amazing hitter that he can still go out there and play baseball during all? I, I don't know, I guess. I think we're all being very dramatic in this whole situation. I mean, the guy still is making, what, $162 million? Like, Can you believe it? Freddie went one for three tonight while dealing with the emotions and no longer being a Brave? It sounds like every other night in Major League Baseball for a lot of guys. But nonetheless, Freeman issued a statement yesterday after firing uh, his, uh, his agent and, uh, of course, had to talk to the media about all of this. A couple of things that, that he said that stood out. He said, there needs to be closure. It's time. I'm a Dodger for the next six years, and I'm happy where my focus lies. I'm happy to be a Dodger. 
which we played that audio on Friday. He was asked about that. Do you need closure? And he said, no. Closure? Why would I need closure? I'm not trying to close anything. It was great here in Atlanta. Now, yesterday, he circles back and says, actually, it is time for closure. I'm sure going to Atlanta for the first time this past weekend did alter a lot of things for him. He also said he's very happy with the Dodgers. When you're in a relationship for 15 years and it ended, you're going to have feelings. Now I'm in the healing process, moving on process, is what Freeman said yesterday. He said he spoke to Clayton Kershaw, uh, and uh, they're all good. And also said, everyone's going to perceive how they want to perceive it. I spent 15 years with the Braves. I wasn't going to try to be a macho man about my feelings, about how I had a great time with the Braves. That time is over. I'm a Los Angeles Dodger now. If they want to perceive me, how I feel about an organization I spent half my life with, then that's how they want to perceive me. That's fine. I'm okay with that. But I've had three months. I've had time to grieve and do all my research and gather information. It's time to move on and focus on the Dodgers. And that's what I'm going to continue to do. I also don't know if he really moved forward and focused on the Dodgers this past weekend, but nonetheless. The latest uh, tale in all the drama, Freeman firing his agent yesterday. And I'll also say this, you know, for Matt Olson, it's probably not easy either. That's always an awkward situation. You ever take a new job and people are still talking about the guy you're replacing? Like, oh, he was so great. Man, we miss Mark around here. Yeah, okay, I feel welcomed. I'm sure Matt Olson feels welcomed in the clubhouse, but, you know, going through this past weekend, that's always a little bit awkward. Uh, it's like uh, if you're with the uh, the ex-wife, you remarried her, and now you have to go to the, the like the wedding. You're invited to the wedding of the first husband. Like, that's eh, a little weird. You're the new, you're the new spouse. And credit to Matt Olson for actually playing some of his best baseball this past week. Got the biggest hit of that game Sunday against the Dodgers after Freeman delivered the go-ahead hit in extra innings. And then last night hit a pair of home runs and had that go-ahead home run last night to beat the Phillies on the road. So it doesn't seem to be affecting his play either, Freeman or Olson. They're both professionals. But it's also probably not easy on Matt Olson. Hearing all about this, having Braves fans tweet like, we'll trade Freddie for Matt Olson today, which you shouldn't do. But for Olson, I'm sure it's not easy for him either. And he didn't do anything. But because of all this, Olsen gets dragged into it a little bit as well. I understand Freddie's unhappy with how things played out. I think firing the agent is just trying to, you know, pass the buck a little bit. That's somebody that's upset and is taking it out on someone. And I think Freddie, uh, deep down inside, if you got him on a one-on-one honest conversation, I would hope he would accept responsibility as well. Because the agent's working for you, you make the final call, and you had every chance to go back to Atlanta. You wanted to play hardball, you wanted to push for that sixth year, now you're in L.A. And let's not act like things are, you know, poor old Freddie, things are so bad. Uh, you're on a, a, one of the best teams in baseball over the past decade, and they're in first place right now. And you're making a lot of money to play baseball. So I think everything will be okay. Speaking of relationships, let me shift to this. Uh, Baker Mayfield and the Cleveland Browns. It's always an easy comparison when you look at a player and a team and compare it to a relationship. Baker Mayfield right now is waiting to see what's going to happen with his future. If you're a Panthers fan, maybe you're waiting to see what will happen with Baker. Will he make his way to Carolina? Does it depend on the Deshaun Watson, uh, Watson punishment? That heads into day two of the hearing today. I wouldn't be surprised if the NFL tries to do a news dump this weekend around July 4th. I also wouldn't be surprised if this thing drags on a little bit longer. But if the hearing wraps up this week and the NFL announces, maybe they wait till July 4th. People are outside barbecuing. Maybe you do it Friday, late Friday when people are heading out of town, including in this industry. We're going to be off on July 4th around here. And maybe if you're the NFL, that's when you announce it. Friday evening, and then by the time everybody gets back to work on Tuesday, it's like, all right, what, what's the latest story? You're on to something else. We'll see when we get news from Deshaun. In the meantime, Baker's trying to wait and see what uh, happens with him. He was at like a charity golf tournament yesterday, and here was uh, Baker Mayfield being asked by the media about the situation with Cleveland right now. 
I mean, is it a little unfair that you still don't kind of know where you're going or what's going to be happening? Um, I think, you know, I think I got frustrated with it not happening before, uh, you know, like mini camp and all those things. Uh, but that's, that's the stuff that's out of my control. And so, you know, let those things happen and, and fall into place. And so right now I'm just controlling what I can and, and enjoying this. Would there be any chance of reconciliation there? No, I, I think for that to happen, there would have to be some reaching out. But uh, we're, we're ready to move on, I think, on both sides. Baker Mayfield talking yesterday. When he says there would have to be some reaching out, I would imagine he's talking about the Browns coming to reach out to him. Uh, the, the two sides on a little bit of a standoff, which, again, takes me back to a relationship comparison where maybe you uh, have too much pride or won't swallow your ego. You wait for the other person to come back, crawling back to you. You're not going to be the first to reach out. Right? You ever have that buddy? Relationship ends. They always say, oh, she'll be back. And then you wait around hoping that one day she's going to knock on the door, she's going to text your phone, and you refuse to reach out or swallow your pride or apologize or whatever. Ah, they'll come back. Don't worry. She'll realize what she's missing. Baker seems to have a similar thought as well. But as they say, ego is the enemy. And Baker's always been a guy with that chip on the shoulder that has a little bit of a strong ego. And because of it, I doubt we'll ever get any sort of reunion between him and the Browns. Here was Sam Acho talking about that this morning on Get Up, saying there's a 0% chance Baker ever plays again for Cleveland. Never say never. I'm going to break that rule. I'm going to say never. Baker Mayfield will not be a Cleveland Brown. There's no way that it happens. I get it that he's under contract. All that makes sense. But sometimes there's something that lies below the surface, like that's not written on paper. The Cleveland Browns were seeking a trade earlier in the offseason, and they achieved that trade in getting Deshaun Watson. At that time, Baker Mayfield knew the relationship was done, even though it might have been on the rocks. And so now that Deshaun Watson may or may not be available this season, even if Cleveland wanted Baker to come back, Baker's not coming back. You saw the smirk. He said, he said they said, will you come back? He said, no, there would have to be some reaching out, i.e., y'all would have to reach out to me, and I still would say no. And so for me, if I'm Baker Mayfield, number one, I'm not coming back to Cleveland. And number two, I'm going to a place like maybe Carolina or Seattle where I'll have an opportunity to compete for a starting position, a place where the two quarterbacks there are not proven in the NFL. We'll wait and see if and when Baker winds up somewhere else. But this, too, seems like a, a toxic relationship where neither side wants to reach out or mend that fence, and Baker's already moved on and said, no, you're going to have to come crawling back to me if I ever consider playing for you again. Could he eventually wind up with the Panthers? Maybe we still have to wait on that Deshaun Watson punishment. But that takes me to this. When we come back, which quarterbacks have the most to prove this NFL season? I think there's some nuance to the conversation, and so we'll rank different guys in different tiers and look at what's on the line for different quarterbacks this year. Baker Mayfield, if given the opportunity, certainly has something to prove this year. Who else is in that company? We'll get to that next. It's the Morning Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. Man, 
Which quarterbacks have the most approved this year in the NFL? We'll get to that here on the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow on ESPN Radio. We were talking about Baker Mayfield last segment. If Baker ever gets the opportunity, he certainly will have something to prove. You know, it's interesting. If Baker winds up with the Panthers, we were saying the same thing about Sam Darnold last year. And for the first month of the season, it played out exactly as I was expecting. I thought you were going to get a fired-up Darnold, have a chip on his shoulder. The Jets bailed on him after just three years after he was their top draft pick. Maybe he felt like he was never given a fair shake. He was injured every year. Jets had to fire their coach twice in those three years. Never had a ton of weapons for Sam Darnold. So he gets to Carolina. It's a new beginning. He starts his first game against the Jets. Played pretty well. They win the game. Similar for Baker. If Baker winds up in Carolina, his first game will be against Cleveland. Also at home, just like it was for Darnold last year. It's funny how that could work out. Darnold's first game with the Panthers was at home against his former team. Baker, if he winds up with the Panthers, his first game with them could also be at home against his former team. Put that chip on the shoulder. Guys that have something to prove. They want to prove themselves. Both high draft picks, same draft, right? Bottomed out with their original franchise. It'd be like the Panthers are going back to the well and trying it all over again after it didn't work for Sam Darnold last year. But Baker certainly would have something to prove. Darnold had something to prove last year. I don't think he proved it. In fact, I think he proved the Jets to be maybe more correct. But Baker could try to prove the Browns wrong. And we know Baker, right, always he loves that chip on the shoulder. He usually does his best when he's being doubted. So if given the opportunity, whether it's with Carolina or Seattle, you know he will have something to prove, and he will know it. He'll go out there and try to prove himself. What about other quarterbacks? This is a little bit of a nuanced conversation. I don't think you can group everybody together because each quarterback has something different on the line. Some guys are just trying to fight for their job. Others are trying to prove themselves. And then a few are trying to boast, uh, are trying to boost their legacy. So let's break this down. And here was, um, before we do so, here was Keyshawn Johnson. Chris Canty had said previously that Dak Prescott has the most to prove for any quarterback in the NFL this year. We'll get to my list in a moment, but here was Keyshawn Johnson's uh, response, as you heard on the, their morning show yesterday right here on ESPN Radio. Keyshawn responding to this idea from Chris Canty that Dak Prescott's the quarterback in the league with the most approved. I have no idea what Chris Canty is talking about. First of all, the offensive line was banged up. The running game never really got going at, 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 at the second half of the season the way it was the first half of the season. And all Dak Prescott has done is come back off an injury, try and get this team going in the right direction. They moved on from Amari Cooper, like you mentioned. CeeDee Lamb now is a frontline guy. Cedric Wilson is gone. Michael Gallup is coming back off an injury. Dalton Schultz is there as a tight end. The defense wasn't up to snuff over the last couple years until all of a sudden they got a better defense. It's just interesting to, to hear what Chris Canty, the giant player, has to say. He's Sean Johnson arguing against Canty's point. Two things to touch on there. Number one, the giant player, talk about Chris Canty. I would also say Keyshawn is a former Cowboy, so if you're going to say Canty's biased for being a giant, wouldn't you then argue that Keyshawn's defense of the Cowboys is him being biased towards his former team? But I would also tell you and remind Keyshawn, Chris Canty was also a former Cowboy. In fact, he was a teammate of Keyshawn Johnson in Dallas and was drafted by the Cowboys, but nonetheless. And also the first point made by Keyshawn there, I think he's kind of arguing against himself. By defending Dak and saying, well, hold on, and the offense wasn't quite as good the second half of the year, and this and that, and the, they were had some injuries. Isn't that the point when you talk about quarterbacks, that the great quarterbacks shouldn't have to have all the, the assistance around them? They should be able to elevate the team. And if you're going to make excuses that, well, Dak didn't play great because he didn't have enough help, then maybe he isn't that great quarterback. Maybe that proves Chris Canty's point that he still has something to prove this year, being Dak Prescott. Now, he still has to improve his legacy to show he is that guy. 
that can lead a team where you want to go and can do it without a ton of help around them. Because Dak has only been at his best when the supporting cast has been at its best. But when I look at the quarterbacks of the NFL this year, as I said, I think you organize them into different tiers. I can't compare Dak Prescott to, say, Tua. I think they have different things on the line, different types of pressure. Just like you in your own industry, everybody in life, you have different types of pressure. You're in different positions in life. It's the same thing with NFL quarterbacks. So if I were to organize them, the first category is those fighting for their job. And these are the guys that probably have the most to prove because if they don't prove it, they're going to be without a job. If Dak Prescott has a down year, it's going to change maybe his reputation amongst some or maybe cement his, his legacy. But I imagine he'll still be the quarterback of the Cowboys next year, and he's still making a good amount of money. He already got his big contract. For guys like Tua, if he doesn't play well this year, he'll probably be out of a starting job. Dolphins may dump him, have to become a backup somewhere, hope for that second opportunity. So the guys that have to prove themselves just for the sake of their job, I would say, would be Tua, Jalen Hurts, and then a Carson Wentz. I think Jameis Winston. I don't think that job's guaranteed. And then Lamar Jackson, in a different sense. I put Lamar in this category because it's his contract year. So he has to prove himself that he's worthy of the big contract he's going to want after this season, whether that's from the Ravens or somebody else. When you're in a contract year, you always have something to prove. So those are the guys fighting for their jobs in one sense or another. Lamar Jackson will have a job. It's just dependent on where and how much money is he going to get and what's that contract going to be like. But Tua, Jalen Hurts, Carson Wentz, Jameis Winston, guys that I think if you don't perform well enough this year – Probably won't be starters in 2023. Then you have the category of guys that have to prove themselves. They still have to prove themselves to the doubters, win people over. And in this category, I'd probably put Mac Jones, who we're probably being unfair towards Mac Jones. I mean, how many other rookies you know, get to the playoffs like Mac Jones did last year without any of those playmakers on offense? But he still has plenty of doubters. So Mac Jones in year two, I think, could uh, – have something on the line to try to prove himself, that he does belong, that he did, uh, he is as good as he was uh, perceived a year ago. I think certainly Ryan Tannehill, whose last season came to a disastrous end. They drafted a quarterback this offseason. Tannehill had to seek help uh, mentally to get through that playoff loss. And a lot of Titans fans, that was like the nail in the coffin that that playoff loss, a lot of people kind of finally for the first time in Tennessee started to turn on Ryan Tannehill. I would say Jimmy Garoppolo, Assuming that he's even in a role where he's starting this year, he certainly has to prove himself to many. And if the Niners dump him, he's kind of like Baker Mayfield. Go to another team and prove the Niners and all those doubters wrong. Assuming he can stay healthy. I would say Kyler Murray needs to prove himself. Right? He was asking for that big contract this offseason, which I think is crazy. But what has Kyler accomplished so far in his NFL career? Certainly to warrant the contract. And then I would also say, Justin Herbert, and I would put jo- um, uh, Josh Allen in this category as well for different things. The bar is set at a different level for those two, but the Bills are Super Bowl favorites this year. And while Josh Allen has been incredible, you probably think he has nothing to prove. Right? He played great last year in the playoffs against the Chiefs. But the Bills have felt like for the last couple of years they thought they could be the king of the AFC. They're the favorites this year. And so I think Allen has to prove that he can take that next step, that he could take the Bills to a Super Bowl, to an AFC title. And for Justin Herbert, the bar is a little bit lower, but he needs to prove himself that he can be just that leader that gets the team to the playoffs. I know this is only his third year, but when Joe Burrow gets to uh, the Super Bowl, that only ramps up the pressure on somebody like Herbert. That only makes him look worse. Those are the guys that have to prove themselves this year in their performance.
Then I get to a couple of guys when it comes to legacy. I would say Aaron Rodgers. Rodgers doesn't have anything to prove in the sense of we know how talented he is. He doesn't have to prove that to you. But, boy, would it really help if he got a second ring before retiring. And imagine if he did it without Devontae Adams and with that offensive crew around him. And the way that the Packers have performed in the playoffs, especially at home in recent years, I think Rodgers could use a nice uh, little postseason run. Another quarterback I put in that same category that could really improve their legacy, I would say, is Russell Wilson. I've always been a big Russell Wilson supporter. But just like Rodgers, I tell you, he probably should have more than one Super Bowl. And he had a chance to get another uh, through the interception at the goal line. Hasn't been back since. The Seahawks have been a little bit of a disappointment in recent years. Now he's in Denver. And the expectations and the hopes are high for the Broncos. And if you go to Denver and you win with another organization, obviously then you show it's a lot about the quarterback, especially if the Seahawks really fall into the tank the next couple of years. But if things don't work out in Denver, because remember, Russell Wilson was not great last year. I imagine a big part was because of the finger injury on his throwing hand. That could do it for a quarterback. But if he then goes to Denver and they still underachieve and they struggle, you know people will point the finger to Russell Wilson. And they'll say, like, man, Seattle really didn't win as many playoff games as they probably should. And now Denver's not winning Russell Wilson either. Fair or otherwise, I think, you know, people would uh, use that as a knock on Russell Wilson. And he is in a tough division, in a tough conference. But I think Russell Wilson and Aaron Rodgers are two guys that can really boost their legacy. They don't have anything to prove in the sense that we know they're very talented quarterbacks. They're both Hall of Famers. Russell Wilson's a Hall of Famer to me. But, boy, would it help if you got that second ring. Or if you're Aaron Rodgers, right, you won without a big-time receiver. Russell Wilson, you won with a second team, showing that you can win wherever you go. And then that leaves, lastly, Dak Prescott. I wouldn't say Dak Prescott is number one when it comes to the quarterback with the most to prove this year. But if you want to talk about established guys, I think you can make a strong case. Dak Prescott, I'd probably put in that middle category of proving himself. You know, Joe Burrow already has more playoff wins than Dak Prescott. That's not a great look. And the Cowboys were incredibly disappointing in their postseason game a year ago. So Dak, sure, does have something to prove to try to prove himself to the doubters that he could be that franchise guy that elevates a team and gets the Cowboys back to a Super Bowl for the first time in 25 years. I don't know if he'd be number one on the list, though. I think even like a Ryan Tannehill has more to prove. I think Justin Herbert I would put ahead of Dak. Maybe Kyler Murray. Jimmy Garoppolo given an opportunity. Seems like he never has a safe job in the league. And then, of course, nobody can beat out those that are actually playing for their jobs. I don't think anybody has more pressure or more to prove this year than a Tua. Even a Jalen Hurts. Carson Wentz. And I could even say a Justin Fields who's trying to prove himself. Zach Wilson trying to prove himself. That's more important or more pressure than the established quarterback like a Dak Prescott. Trent, I put you on the spot. Which quarterback this year, in your mind, do you think has the most to prove in the NFL? Well, Luke, I kind of pondered a little list here while you were going on your soliloquy, and I've made a couple uh, couple names. Obviously, you know, the big answer is Tua. You now have all the weapons around you to succeed. Can you do it? Can you get it done in the AFC East? Jalen Hurts as well. You, know how, you now have A.J. Brown with a young core of wide receivers. I think he has a lot to approve. But I think the player with the most approved quarterback it's yeah. got to be Derek Carr in my eyes. I think Ooh. he's got the roster around him that uh, they can succeed with, not only the offense, but the defense as well. Maybe I'm a little salty about Devontae Adams going back with his college teammate, but I will say there's Raiders are spending a lot of money. They went all in on Derek Carr, 
all in on Devontae Adams. They're going to sign Darren Waller to a big deal. The Raiders have to get it done. But it just so happens to be that they're in the AFC West. So I think because they're in the AFC West, going up against those top-tier quarterbacks, Derek Carr's got a lot lot to prove with this new offense. I like that too. I didn't even include Derek Carr. I I did think about him. I would have put him in that same category with the Tannehills and Justin Herberts of trying to prove himself. But I was thinking, you know, they just gave him a contract. I figure they're happy. But there is an out in that contract after this year. So if Derek Carr does not play well with those weapons around him and the pressure now on this Raiders team in a tough division, would the Raiders be willing to try to look elsewhere at that quarterback position a year from now? Yeah, when will Mark Davis get uh, impatient with Mm -hmm. Derek Carr? At some point, if you're not producing the wins, I know they've been to the playoffs a couple times. Obviously, they had the coaching change midseason. But I will say, this is a major prove-it year for Derek Carr with the weapons that he has around him. He should throw for 5,500 yards with with that roster around him, Luke. I mean, if he doesn't, I think it will be a disappointment. Yeah, it's fair. I mean, he had 4,800 last year. Now you add Devontae Adams, and you add, on paper, theoretically, a better offensive coach leading the way as well in a tough division. And the Raiders were a playoff team last year, so you know, you're know you going to want to try to get back there this year. Plenty of quarterbacks with something to prove this year. Don't know if Dak Prescott would be number one, though. When we come back, speaking of quarterbacks, where would uh, Spencer Rattler slot into the SEC this year? And what should we expect from him and the Gamecocks? It's the Morrow Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Coming up, where were, where will Spencer Rattler slot into the SEC this year? It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. I was thinking about this because somebody reached out to the show on Monday and asked if Spencer Rattler could be considered this year. Would he be considered for the SEC Player of the Year if, say, South Carolina were to win nine games? And in order to win nine games, I'd imagine they'd have a pretty good year from Spencer Rattler. So could he put himself in that conversation? And then yesterday, somebody called into the show and asked, you know, how come the Gamecocks have never been consistent enough? They've been consistently inconsistent when it comes to football. And I would say the big thing there is because they've never had elite quarterback play. They're the one school that's never had an all-conference quarterback. That's a problem. And you need a talented quarterback in order to win, especially consistently. You get an arch manning. You believe, like, all right, for the next three years, we're going to be really good. When you bring in Trevor Lawrence, like, all right, for at least three years while he's here, we're going to be competing for national championships. And for South Carolina, you look at the one time that they were really good in football. It was when Steve Spurrier was there. So has a lot to do with the coach. And credit to Spurrier for bringing in good quarterback play with Connor Shaw and Steven Garcia. And they really haven't been able to duplicate it since until now with Spencer Rattler, which is the reason for excitement for South Carolina. Because on paper... You now have a quarterback better than one you've ever brought into the program. Can he perform well enough that he meets those expectations from maybe a year ago? And South Carolina potentially could win nine games. And Spencer Rattler potentially could be a name, at least in the conversation for SEC Player of the Year, one of the top quarterbacks in the conference. Here is Paul Feinbaum on um, Alabama Radio 
the morning show with uh, Cole Kublik and uh, Greg McElroy. And this was uh, Feinbaum being asked about the Gamecocks by McElroy. Here's what uh, Paul had to say about South Carolina for this year. What about South Carolina, Paul? I know it's kind of out of left field, but we spent, I feel like, a decent amount of time discussing Georgia, decent amount of time discussing Tennessee, and a decent amount of time discussing the Florida Gators. I don't feel like we've talked much about South Carolina. How dangerous do you think they can be uh, if they can find some consistency at quarterback? That's the issue. Uh, and and I'll, I'll defer to you, Greg. And I, I know fans are just going crazy over Spencer Rattler, but I, you know, I talked to a coach the other day who said, hold on a second. You know, he's got some serious flaws. So, I mean, I don't know. I can't evaluate, evaluate quarterbacks like you can. Um, but uh, if he can come together uh, and he's got a couple of compliments, then, yeah, they can make a lot of noise. But, but I do not believe South Carolina uh, is going to have what I would call a breakthrough, show, like an Arkansas-like season. I think they'll be better. Uh, I, I felt they, they probably won a game or two last year uh, and got ahead of themselves. Fine, but I'm talking about South Carolina. I would not expect an Arkansas breakthrough either. Right? Let's be realistic. What I've been saying is just do better than last year. They won six games of the regular season last year. This year, win seven, maybe eight. That'd be a great year, I think, for South Carolina. If you're talking about an Arkansas, Arkansas breakthrough, no, I don't think South Carolina will be like a top 15 team and maybe get to 10 wins this year. I wouldn't see that either. But be better than last year. And it's interesting when you look at last year because I could see both sides of the uh, argument. You could say that for South Carolina last year, you know, they had that good season, made it to a bowl, won a bowl game, doing it all while playing four different quarterbacks, none of which were all that great, none of which on paper really hold the candle to Spencer Rattler if Rattler can get back to what we thought he would be. That's the positive. Right, that's the positive spin, that you look at last year's team and say, man, they went 7-6 and six with four different quarterbacks, and look at the quarterbacks they used. Only a handful of programs last year actually started four different quarterbacks. And South Carolina had the best record of the few teams. I think four programs last year had to use four different quarterbacks. And South Carolina was the only one with a winning record, if I remember correctly. The other ones won like three games. So it's pretty impressive what South Carolina was able to pull off despite what they were getting in that position. Now, if you get some stability with Spencer Rattler, man, you would you could daydream about what you could accomplish. But then the negative, to look at the uh, – to be pessimistic – you look at last year and say, well, you know, they were, uh, what, 4-4? Four and four? And then they beat Florida, who ended up firing their coach. They beat Auburn, who wanted to fire their coach. And then they beat UNC, which was one of the more disappointment, disappointing teams in the country last year. And in between, they got blown out by Texas A&M. They got blown out by Clemson. And they lost to Missouri, which probably wasn't a great loss on the road. So then you wonder, like, okay, do you take these games with a bit of a grain of salt? Look at their wins last year. Eastern Illinois, East Carolina, Troy, Vanderbilt, those were all gimmies. UNC in the bowl game was good, but I picked South Carolina going into the bowl even though they were underdogs because you knew they would be more fired up for that game than UNC. UNC did not want to play in the Dukes-Mayo Bowl. And then you beat Florida, who they were a train wreck, had to fire their coach, and you beat Auburn, who, well, they are a bit of a train wreck as well and tried to railroad their coach after just one year. That would be the negative view. That you look at last year and say, yeah, I mean, they went 7-6, and six, but... And you look at some of those wins, not all that impressive. Meanwhile, you lost to Kentucky, you lost to Tennessee, you lost to Missouri, all teams that were kind of on level footing with you in your own division. You got blown out by Georgia, blown out by Clemson, blown out by Texas A&M, the three ranked teams you faced. So how hollow is that 7-6 and six record? That would be the concern. That would be the negative. But when we look at this year, as I said, you got to do better than a year ago. Win seven games. Win eight. 
And could Spencer Rattler try to thrust his way into the conversation of top quarterbacks in the SEC? Maybe. If he plays up to the standard that Oklahoma thought they were getting. When I look at the SEC, obviously any type of award when it comes to quarterback or best player, it's on Bryce Young to lose. The guy was the Heisman winner, and he's coming back. So it would devalue the award if you said, ah, oh, no, he's not the best quarterback. It's clearly Bryce Young, anything is, it's all on him to lose this year at Alabama. I'd also put, I'm big on uh, Hooker at Tennessee. I'd put him in that top tier. And then I'd probably put K.J. Jefferson, who was really good last year, now in his second year in that system with the same coach. And I like Arkansas again this year. Those are probably the top three quarterbacks to me. Then you get to maybe the question marks. Will Levis, I'd probably put in the question mark. People are really talking up Will Levis, saying maybe he could be a top 10 pick. I still think he's got to show me something this year, show me more than a year ago, take that step forward. And it is Kentucky football, so you know there's always a ceiling to their success. I'd say Anthony Richardson, big question mark. There's high expectations, high hopes. I think he still has to prove that. And I would say Jackson Dart could be a question at Ole Miss. You know, a high-end recruit transfers into Ole Miss. We just saw what Lane Kiffin was able to do with Matt Corral, and Lane certainly knows offense. He is one of the better play callers in the country. Could it be a plug-and-play situation? You plug in Jackson Dart and kind of pick up where you left off a year ago. Could Jackson Dart be somebody that no one's really focusing on right now that becomes one of the best quarterbacks in the SEC? And then I'd probably put Spencer Rattler in this category as well, where if you just go off of the expectations for Rattler coming out of high school or when he was at Oklahoma, if he could get back to that point, yeah, he could be a, a high-end SEC quarterback. The concern would be, well, the SEC is a little bit tougher than Oklahoma. You're not going to have Lincoln Riley, and you're not going to have the weapons around you that you had at Oklahoma. You're going to face some better defenses than you did at Oklahoma. And if you still got benched at Oklahoma, what's going to happen in the SEC? But I do think Spencer Rattler will have a good year, and I think I'd probably put him, his ceiling would probably be that second tier. Bryce Young, K.J. Jefferson, Hendon Hooker would be my top tier quarterbacks in the SEC for this year. And then right now, that second tier, I would say Richardson, Levis, Jackson Dart, Spencer Rattler, with all four of those guys, I'd give the opportunity, based off of their play, to bump up to the top tier. If Richardson's as good as advertised, if Will Levis is this first-round pick, if Jackson Dart fills in those shoes of Matt Corral, if Spencer Rattler meets the expectations, they could play well enough to potentially be a top quarterback amongst the top quarterbacks in the SEC this year. And if Spencer Rattler could be an all-conference quarterback for the South Carolina Gamecocks. First time they've ever done that. They'll accomplish some good things this year as well. We'll wrap up Hour 1 next. It's more Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. We are talking last segment about uh, SEC quarterbacks and where Spencer Rattler could slot in. You know, he has a chance to do some things for South Carolina that has never really been done at that position in the SEC. Now, Trent, I know that uh, previously you guys had ranked quarterbacks in the SEC East. Right, correct. On air. And you had Spencer Rattler only behind... 
Now I'm drawing a blank. Who did Hendon Hooker. Hendon Hooker, right. Yeah, so I had Hendon Hooker, my number one quarterback, I think, in the SEC East. I think yes. that's relatively obvious. He's got the – I feel like he's the most pro-ready guy as of right now. And based off of talent and what I saw from Oklahoma, I did have Spencer Rattler slot in that second spot in the SEC East. I'm, I'm relatively high on the guy. From everything we're hearing, the videos I'm seeing, it seems like he can really command this uh, South Carolina offense a little bit better than Jason Brown or Zeb Nolan. No disrespect to those gentlemen. I would certainly hope so. <laughs> Which, again, goes back to the reason why you could be an optimistic Gamecock fan. You went 7-6 and six last year with those guys at the quarterback. Four different quarterbacks that probably three of them shouldn't have even started for you in the SEC. But then if you're a negative Gamecock fan, you say, yeah, they went 7-6 and six last year, but you know who did they beat? Did they beat a good team? We could argue about Florida, Auburn, even UNC. None of those are great wins in hindsight. But when you add Spencer Rattler to the mix... And what he could bring to the table, something that potentially you haven't had before, there's certainly reason to be excited, especially in year two of uh, Shane Beamer after year one looked as good as it did. We'll shift gears, talk some golf, when we come back with Jeremy Schilling. I'm sure there's plenty to get to. Hour two next. WTMZ 98.9 FM, WTMZ 910 AM and 94.7 FM, W234CD, Dorchester Terrace, Brentwood, Charleston. This is the Morrow Midday Show. But wait, there's more. On ESPN Radio. Second hour of the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Talk some golf coming up in just a moment with Jeremy Schilling as we do at this time every Wednesday. Hey, don't forget, speaking of golf, the Summer Golf Tour continues next Monday, 8 a.m. Head over to charlestonsportsradio.com and get your foursome for 98.9. Next week is the Plantation Course at Edisto. And the foursomes will be released at 8 a.m. Monday morning at charlestonsportsradio.com. Of course, as you know by now, they go incredibly fast. They sell out within minutes. So set the alarm, mark the calendar, be ready to go. We don't take holidays off. Actually, I will be taking July 4th off. But the Summer Golf Tour doesn't take holidays off. So be ready to go Monday. Because I assume the foursomes still are released Monday morning at 8 a.m. Regardless of what day it is. The Plantation Course at Edisto. Get your foursome, 98.9, Monday morning at charlestonsportsradio.com as we head towards the final weeks of the summer golf tour. Speaking of golf, our resident golf expert joins us around this time each and every Wednesday. He's Jeremy Schilling on Twitter at jshill and writes for PGA Magazine, and he's with us now. Jeremy, good afternoon. How are you? Um, I am good, Luke. I'm, I'm coming with positivity uh, 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 positivity today. And by the way, Trent, Monday, 8 a.m., you'll be on it, right? Booking that foursome? Oh, absolutely, Jeremy. Me, you, Luke, and grab another person. We're ready to go anytime. Right. Yeah. Call the number. Who wants to be the fourth? No, just kidding. You guys are getting another golf event in South Carolina. I'm not sure if you saw the announcement. The uh, 
because it, it uh, just came this morning with the PGA Tours coming back for another trip around South Carolina. The CJ Cup, which has been in South Korea for much of its existence, is going to Congaree in, in uh, Ridgeland, South Carolina. Oh. It hosted it, it, its own event um, last year, if you may remember, during the COVID year when they were trying to add tournaments to replace one that had to be moved or canceled. So more golf coming to South Carolina. All right. Excellent. How about that? Why not? Great golf state around here. Plenty of events, of course, uh, come through here. So that's good news. Hey, um, maybe one day we'll be able to get the Slime Cup here as well. Uh, let me ask you about this uh, Nickelodeon <laughs> Slime Cup deal that went on this past weekend where they uh, combined golfers and celebrities and Nickelodeon people and, I guess, slime. I didn't watch any of it, but uh, break it down for me. What, what did you think of the Slime Cup this past weekend? You, you missed your homework assignment, Luke? Yeah. I'll have to catch up on the DVR. I love a good slime on uh, Nickelodeon. Nice sliming. All right. So, basically, this was... John Rahm, Colin Morikawa, Justin Thomas, Lexi Thompson, Justin Herbert, Saquon Barkley, Nikki, you'll have to help me out from uh, WWE. Um, God, some callers are going to not like the fact that I can't name this uh, uh, person's last name. Joe just smashed his sandwich somewhere. What? Joe Mack just smashed his sandwich all over the place somewhere listening to this because you don't know the name of a wrestler. Uh, I'm I'm just not good in this area. Uh, plus, I don't blame you. Nickelodeon stars uh, competing in silly golf holes based on uh, Nickelodeon shows. I am not a member of the Nickelodeon family, so I knew of SpongeBob. That's about all I could go there. I know that slime has been a big thing with the slime game that. The NFL has done in concert with with CBS. Um, it was fun entertainment. I think for those who, who can appreciate it, to see them hitting golf shots inside of the Rose Bowl and trying from one one yard line to the the, the other end zones uprights, trying to hit the uprights for. Rom and for JT, who advanced to the final, that was fun. One with four seconds left by JT. I have no idea if that was rigged or not. And kudos to uh, uh, Jeff uh, uh, Jeff Newbarth, uh, who is an actual golf producer, and the entire crew for pulling this off. Uh, Noah Eagle, Alain Eagle's son, was the voice of it. Um, you know, it was. I think if you have somebody in that age range, try to find a way to see it again. If not, uh, you can take a pass. But kudos to them for trying. And believe it or not, Luke, this was actually a part of the new TV deal signed in 2020, uh, signed in 2020, which began this year, which we, which we talked about way back in January on this show with Viacom CBS, which is now like Paramount Global or some other name or a Paramount World the company's been renamed to. So this is actually a part of a PGA Tour and LPGA Tour TV deal, believe it or not. Um, you weren't a Nickelodeon kid growing up, or you're just saying this no. stuff was all after your time? No, not into Nick. So, no, no, no. It's stuff after my time. Oh, okay, it's- yeah, yeah. And I was not a big Nickelodeon kid. I was a Sesame Street, Thomas the Tank Engine. I was a PBS kid. Ah, PBS. 
Hey, uh, would you rather watch uh, uh NFL playoff game or would you rather watch golf on uh, Nickelodeon? What did you like better? You know what? I, I did not watch a lot of the slime games, um, the slime playoff game, but I think I, I think this I was able to appreciate more just because I knew what we were talking about here. But some of these references from some of these Nickelodeon <laughs> characters, like I have no idea where that came from, and I apologize. <laughs> so um, it, 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 it was – I think the football game was probably pure for those. I was curious to see how golf would translate um, onto a Nickelodeon program. Um, so we just why I was even watching it in the first place. But my connection to it, um, it's probably pure for football, but more intrigue for golf. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah certainly. Uh, I'll have to uh, check it out on the old DVR. See how things went because I watched the uh, the football. I watched all the football game on Nick. I'll have to watch the Slime Cup. See how they do with golf on Nickelodeon. As we talk with uh, Jeremy Schilling, our resident golf expert. All right, let's transition out of the Slime Cup and get to uh, some other <laughs> things going on. Um, the Travelers in my uh, my old uh, stomping grounds uh, had a, bre- a bit of a wild finish on Sunday. As we go back to this past weekend, what stood out to you about the uh, Travelers Championship up in Connecticut? Oh, man, some may remember Sahith Tagala from Super Bowl weekend in Phoenix um, who surged to the lead. He had his family fly in. He gets a bad bounce on the drivable 17th, which sank his chances. And he had a one-shot lead over Xander Shoffley on the 18th hole. On the 72nd hole, he played it. Just a tremendous round of golf to get himself back into this uh, position. And there are times where you go and there are times where you don't go. And playing straight downwind, I was with Sir Nick Faldo that he did not need to hit driver. I know folks out there that he has a, that, that he does not carry a three-wood. It would have been a driving iron further back with that second shot. But you're playing with a one-shot lead, and you know that. It's not like you didn't know the information. You know that. So the fact that he made that poor decision and compounded it. I believe he thought he, he thought he had enough room between himself and the bunker and that steep lip. He winds up hitting the lip and it comes back to his feet and ultimately makes, makes double bogey and Xander's able to go on and win. But for me, it was the compounding of two poor decisions. He should have pitched out. He was all the way down there. I mean, it's not like he had a a long way to go with the second shot. Hit it on the green somewhere. Try to make a par, if not bogey, and at least you put the pressure on Xander. Xander was then able to play 18 freely. He's going to get his win, and I hope that my tweet late Sunday into Monday clarified things. I love Sahith. I think he's got a great, just a tremendous amount of talent going forward. I disagreed with two decisions that he made, but that does not take away from the the type of game that he has and the type of uh, baller that he is. I mean, he went into Sunday facing two behemoths in, in, in Dander and Patrick Cantlay and, 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 and nearly took both of them down. So nothing, nothing against him. He just made two poor decisions. You'll learn from that. You'll get better from that. And I think he'll win and could win very soon. 
you know, I, I've been paying attention, but you're obviously more dialed into all this stuff with, with Live Golf and everything going on with the PGA Tour. I've seen the quotes. I've seen the justifications. I've seen dueling press conferences. Seems like a lot more talking uh, since we last talked with you about all this. So give us the lowdown. In the, over the last week, uh, what's the latest with the Live Golf Tour, the PGA Tour, guys moving around, press conferences? What's the latest there? Yeah, so let's just give a shout-out to NG Chun, by the way, to, uh, who won the KPMG Women's PGA um, at the brand-new Blue Chorus at Congressional Country Club. Place looks great. She held on to what was at one point a seven-shot lead earlier in the week. Lexi Thompson made a surge, and then Lexi just couldn't hit the putts down the stretch. And it's, it's hard to watch. And I feel really bad for Lexi Thompson, and I hope she can bounce back quick from this and get that major which she's been coveting for you know so long now i think it's five years and she hasn't won anything since uh, uh 2019 so it's been a long time waiting for her in terms of the men the pga tour live golf live golf is living just like it wants to live and it's in portland oregon this week there have been resignations from members of that portland oregon uh golf club uh pumpkin ridge we're not happy. The local and state governments are not happy with live there, and and the sports washing that continues. In 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 my opinion, the DP World Tour, formerly known as the European Tour, had a decision to make because of their financial situation, which is way too complicated for this podcast. Get in bed with the Saudis or stick with the PGA Tour and expand the strategic alliance. They decided to stick with the PGA Tour. Men's golf, as we know it, stays intact for now, except for the defections that have, you know, since happened and will happen little by little. Nobody big yet, really, except for uh, Mr. Kepka, uh, 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 Brooks Kepka, that is. The big part of this strategic alliance is now a way for DP World Tour, which means European Tour players, to get to the PGA Tour. Top 10 final race to Dubai uh, standings, not already exempt players, would get to the PGA Tour. Uh, this basically determined yesterday, a whole bunch, well, along with a whole bunch of other stuff, that the PGA Tour is the preeminent place to play. And yes, 14 of the top 15 in the world are playing in the Scottish Open next week. But the PGA Tour is where it's at, and the PGA Tour is coming in uh, to expand their relationship, put down a boatload of money to lift up the European Tour and keep it going so that that, that it can keep cultivating and help guys from other tours get to the European Tour and then eventually get to the PGA Tour. Um, That's that part of it as part of this Corn Ferry Tour, which is the PGA AAA uh, uh, sorry, PGA Tour Triple changed their qualification uh, uh, deal. Now, 30 guys getting tour cards plus top five in ties from Q School, which went away in 2013, which I thought was a bad decision at the time. I wrote about it at the time. Uh, qualifying school is back. It's dramatic television. It, it is as anti-slime cup as you can get. But this is a Big, big victory for the PGA Tour, a big, big victory for the European Tour, and a blow to the Saudis who thought that they could get a way in, and which brings us to a meeting two weeks from now 
when they will maybe or maybe not try to get accreditation from the official World Golf Ranking Board um, to get world ranking points, which would be their way into the majors for these players going forward. If not, these guys are going to fall off and, and they won't qualify. And as I've been saying for weeks now, the fate of the Saudi-backed golf league comes down to world ranking points and what Masters uh, Tournament Chairman Fred Ridley does. That's that. That's the summary of where we are there, Luke. Um, because it's it, it it'll come down to a board, and it'll come down to Fred Ridley. I, I I believe, and there will be a day to talk about the fallout from this, and the fact that these guys are tripping over themselves in press conferences because they can't keep their story straight. It's crazy. It's it's absolutely berserk. Yeah, it's certainly interesting. We'll continue to see what happens. And obviously, Jeremy will give us the latest each week with all this. As we talk off with our resident golf expert, Jeremy Schilling, on Twitter, at Jay Schill, writes for PGA Magazine. Hey, uh, uh, we've got the John Deere Classic coming up. What should we expect with that? This is a really weak field. I'll just say it flat out. This is a really weak field. Uh, 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 by the way, Matt Wolf, Carlos Ortiz, both went to live golf. You won't see them anytime soon in the PGA Tour. This is a really weak field. So I had to look hard for a name. Nick Hardy. This is a guy, Corn Ferry Tour grad, had had a really rough 2021-2022 season going, uh, mostly because of an injury. Since the Zurich Classic, T21, T35, T14 at the U.S. Open, T8 at the Travelers, working his way up. Nick Hardy went to the University of Illinois, was known by his coach, Mike Small, as a guy who liked to work. And you know guys who work hard. Eventually, you will um, fly right if you get in the right situation. He's already, just to give you an example of purse increases, in his career, he's he's already won over a million dollars through various starts and sponsor exemptions and all that. So, this is a guy who's who's won a lot of money. Now he's looking for status, and I believe Nick Hardy gets his first win this week on the PGA Tour. All right, we'll see if it happens. That'll, that'll be exciting. Hey, before we let you go, I got to ask you: Is Tiger Woods? We're going to see Tiger back out in the course next week. Yes, we are scheduled to see Tiger at an event called the J.P. JP McManus Pro-Am. It is held every year um, in the run-up to the Open, the 150th Open. I'm just going to run through names here uh, that are in this field. And and just tell me, uh, Luke, if, if you've heard of these people, Patrick Cantlay, Bryson, Matt Fitzpatrick, Tommy Fleetwood, Ricky Fowler, Brooks uh, uh, Kepka, Rory, Justin Thomas, uh, Scotty Scheffler, Jordan Spieth, Tiger, Vern Biesberger, uh, Niall Horan from One Direction, Bill Murray, Mark Wahlberg. That sound right? Yeah, sounds like a pretty good group. This starts Monday, July 4th, Tuesday, July 5th. Uh, it will stream, uh, my current understanding, subject to change, is that it will stream live on Peacock in the mornings and air on Golf Channel and Encore presentations at night. Peacock in the morning, Golf Channel at night. This is July 4th and 5th, 
Monday and Tuesday of next week, and it will be Tiger's first appearance in any kind of golf setting since he withdrew um, from the PGA Championship with that 79. He is still scheduled to play the 150th Open at St. Andrews in two weeks. This is a very significant mile marker for Tiger and his recovery, and we will talk about that if he competes, that is, next week. Yeah, anytime it's you know it's a story now. Anytime Tiger gets out there, it's uh, like must see TV. So uh, looking forward to that next week. He's Jeremy Schilling. What's going to be very interesting, Luke? By the way, uh, 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 sorry to interrupt, and and I'll be quick with this. This is a very laid back environment. Um, I don't know if it's cart or no cart, but whether it is, it's only thirty six holes. It's only two days, and the amount of stress that he has to put on his mind golf-wise, goes way down, which means the amount of focus he can put on his body goes way up. So this will be a good determination of does he look like somebody who can compete at the Open, but I don't think making a definitive point on his health will come from this hit and giggle, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll see what we get next week. We'll break it down. He's Jeremy Schilling, our resident golf expert, Uh, On Twitter at Jay Schill, writes for PGA Magazine, joins us every week. Jeremy, appreciate it as always. We'll catch up with you uh, down the road. For what it's worth, Trent told me that he watched the Slime Cup, so you may have a Trent Take segment coming. Perfect. I can't wait to watch it myself. I'm looking forward to the Slime Cup. This is a future content piece for you for February. Yeah, why didn't – who was the flight attendant that was supposed to call in way back in, like, February? Whatever happened to those things? I know. we got to search. we got to find one. We still got plenty yeah, of downtime. Yeah, until All September. All these people call back in. Hey, have fun, guys. Happy Fourth of July. Yeah, likewise. Take care, Jeremy Schilling, who joins us every week. Yeah, we do have to have like, a flight attendant on. I don't know any flight attendants. Trent, you know any flight attendants? I mean, yeah, I know some past flight attendants uh, that are in my uh, family lineage. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, if we need any flight attendant stories, uh, you know, my uh, family's got a couple good ones. I think a flight attendant would be a really interesting guest. I'm sure they have a ton of stories. <laughs> um, did you watch any of the Slime Cup? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, I don't know where Jeremy was getting that information wow, from because, news. yeah, I didn't tune into the Slime Cup. Uh, I did tell him that I was waiting on pins and needles to hear uh, his review of the uh, the Slime Cup, but no, I unfortunately didn't tune in. So here's what's interesting. Jeremy's older than me. I'm older than you, Trent. So we have I would, not different generations, but at least in terms of, like, what was popular when you were growing up. Jeremy was a PBS kid. I was – my family, my brothers and I – and I'm the youngest, so they may have had some other differences as well. But I also know all three of us, my older brothers and I, we were big into Nick and Disney, Nickelodeon and Disney. And then as I grew up and you meet more people, that kind of became a little bit of like a rivalry. Kids were either Nickelodeon or they were Disney. Uh, I went to college. A good friend of mine now who grew up, they didn't have, I think they didn't have Nickelodeon. So we never watched anything on Nick. Or it was the opposite. They didn't have Disney, I think. They never watched anything on Disney. He was a Nickelodeon kid. It was a big deal. And so when I was growing up, as a kid in the 90s, oh, my goodness, Nickelodeon and Disney, so many great shows. So then, Trent, I ask you, when you were growing up, was it still Nickelodeon? Was it Disney? What did you grow up watching as a kid? Early 2000s, Luke, I'd have to say it was a mixture of both. I yeah, think I tuned right. into Nickelodeon, Disney, a lot of Sports Center. I can tell you that right mm-hmm. now. My, my TV was usually on uh, ESPN. But, you know, if I wanted to watch, you know, a couple of Disney shows here and there, I would say, though, Disney 
probably dominated the household more than Nickelodeon. I feel like Nickelodeon didn't produce the amount of shows necessary for, you know, a four children household. Yeah. I get that. Sports Center, of course, yeah, that was huge. Yeah. And Sports Center was was so great back in the day. It's not the same quality now. And it would be the point that you would just leave it on all day and then the Sports Center would never change. And by the time you got to, like, noon or you already watched it four times, you knew what was coming next. You could re- do the script for him. And at that point, you realize, like, all right, I probably should change the channel. I should go outside and do something. I've seen Sports Center four times in a row. Uh, but back in the day, uh, Nickelodeon, Disney, they were the best. Nickelodeon, the amount of shows that they pumped out in the 90s that were so good. And then you had Keenan and Kel, and you had Rocco's Modern Life, which was like, yeah, that wasn't really a kid's show. The other one was Ren and Stimpy was another one. Like, that one. If you go back and watch it, like, that wasn't really, that was adults making a kid's show that was really, like, for adults. And then, of course, Rugrats and Hey Arnold and Ah, Real Monsters was a hit. And I love the game shows. Anything with Summer Sanders back in the day, I'm watching it. Figure it out. Double Dare. Legends of the Hidden Temple. So good. I'm all for slime. I'm all for watching sporting events on Nickelodeon that uh, implements the slime. And then, I don't know if this is a hot take or not, but I've always felt this way. Uh, when it comes to amusement parks, people always love Disney. But uh, Disney, I don't know if I would say it's overrated, but Universal Studios is better. Go to Universal. Whoa, hot oh, take. Yeah, that's right. That's a hot, steaming take. Get Rick Disney Warren. out. Universal's where it's at. Wow. And I remember when we were kids, we went down there, and we went because uh, they used to have, like, the Nickelodeon. They had their studios down there, and we were waiting outside, and they were filming, uh, I don't know what it was, All That or Keenan and Cal or something. That was a real big thrill. That was a lot of fun. Get Disney out. I'm a Universal <laughs> guy. And Disney's okay. I, I went to Disney a few years ago, but I think Universal's the better one. Very underrated. If you're ever going down to Orlando to the amusement parks, forget Disney. Everyone goes to Disney. It's too the long. The lines are too long. It's too busy. It's too much going on. Universal, the underrated one. And back in the day, too, you'd always wait for the movies on Disney. That's what Disney really had going for them. And it'd be like uh, the third Friday of every month. And when you were a kid, like you weren't going out on Fridays. You had to be in bed at whatever time. So uh, you you always look forward to those movies. My date with the president's daughter. H e double hockey sticks. Brink. The Paper Brigade, oh, classic movies on Disney in the 90s. Love those. What a great childhood. And then uh, the Slime Cup, by the way, was like at 8 o'clock. I feel like that's too late. Are kids staying up to watch golf at 8 o'clock on a Saturday? I feel like you got to make that a little bit earlier in the night. But that was always a big night. Parents were going out. Babysitter would come over. We'd make some chicken nuggets in the oven and sit down and watch the uh, Disney movie. What a time to be alive back in the day. Simpler times. Oh, Simpler you're not times. kidding. Yeah, Absolutely. And you'd watch uh, Will Friedle in his latest uh, Disney movie every week or every month. Hey, when we come back, how important is it to have the ability to throw a baseball well? I'll explain what I mean next. It's the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. How important is it to have the ability to throw a baseball, to look like uh, you know what you're doing? Because I think this was Monday night. Maybe it was over the weekend. 
Canelo and Triple G, they're getting ready for their third fight with one another in September. They were both at uh, Yankee Stadium to promote the thing. And they met, you know, at home plate, like, before the game. And then they had to throw a first pitch. And um, there's video of Canelo, like, even warming up in the clubhouse beforehand. And trying to deliver the baseball. His first pitch wasn't great. And then if you watch the video of him, the warm-ups is even worse. The fact that he warmed up for it. And when you watch the warm-ups, it looks terrible throwing the baseball. I'm watching the video right now. Ah, it's ugly. They can't get it to the plate. And the form is terrible. Now, obviously, Canelo, he's a, he's a fighter. He's a boxer. I don't know if he grew up playing baseball. But I got to be honest, I watched that video. Look, if uh, Canelo and I got in a ring, he would embarrass me. But suddenly, I tell you, he, uh, he would actually he, he more than embarrass me. He'd probably kill me. But I tell you, suddenly, he's not looking as intimidating. I watch him get up there, try to throw a baseball. Eh, I don't know. Canelo, if I was uh, Triple G, I'd say, oh, this is the guy I'm fighting. No problem. Hey, Luke, let's watch our words. Let's uh, watch our words here. I don't need anybody in the Canelo camp banging on 60 <laughs> Markfield Drive here looking for you, Luke, because I w- that's the only time I would never defend you. If, if Canelo was staring you right in the face, I'd say, yeah, Luke, you're on your own on this one. Well, you know, people say that we look alike around here. Yeah, that's so a good they point. show up, oh, that's him over there. <laughs> no, I'm Trent. That's, that's Luke over there talking trash. But I do think somebody... I think throwing a baseball is important in that sense. Probably because you see it more often. Like, a lot of people can't shoot a basketball well. You grew up maybe focusing on a certain sport. But because we always have these first pitches, I think that's why we see people throw a baseball more often than we see throw a football or shoot a basketball. You know, like, it's a big deal. Props to really all the presidents usually do a really good job. Nobody was greater than George Bush uh, uh, after September 11th, delivering a perfect strike at Yankee Stadium. Now, he played baseball. And obviously his family was involved with the Texas Rangers in Major League Baseball. But that's like a lot of pressure. for You can't go up there and be the guy that botches a first pitch as a president or as a celebrity. But when you're an athlete, like it looks even worse because you're expected to be athletic and you can't throw a baseball. I'm not talking about like if you bounce it, that's fine. I'd probably throw one wildly out of the strike zone. But you have to at least look the part. Like I usually play pickup basketball on Wednesdays. And you could tell if somebody played basketball before. They may not be great. They may be rusty. They may be a step slow. They may be missing their shots. But you can tell when you watch them, like, oh, yeah, that's somebody that probably grew up playing the sport. Other guys you watch, somebody shows up in jeans, and you realize, like, oh, yeah, this guy's never played basketball. What is he doing showing up in jeans? And I'm sure it's the same day with football. You watch somebody throw a football, like, oh, yeah, that guy's played before. Or if they run a route, like, you have some idea. And they may be slower now. They may not have as good of a cut or footwork. But you can see that, oh, yeah, one time they did play. Anyways, you watch Canelo throw a baseball. It looks like the guy just picked up a baseball for the first time. How important do you think it is, Trent, to be able to th- to look like you know what you're doing when you throw a baseball? I think it's incredibly important, Luke. That's how I kind of test people. You, you know, I'm not an all-star athlete by any stretch of the imagination, but we all in this room played sports growing up, so we know how to throw a ball. But I, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to take a lot of these NFL insiders and reporters and some of the basketball insiders and just see them throw <laughs> a ball, any kind of ball. See them throw a baseball, a football, maybe shoot a basketball. Because, I mean, we saw a video of Max Kellerman shooting oh. a basketball a couple weeks back. The guy, I mean, rips on people for not being able to take good jumpers. Hey, pal. I mean, I saw the video. What are we doing? But I think it's incredibly important, you know, just to make sure you have a little bit of athleticism in you. Yeah, you got to look at the part. There's a little, like, machismo to it as well, right? If you see somebody like, oh, they can't throw a baseball. You know, like everybody, Tom Cruise was in the in a War of the Worlds. Was in one of the scenes, he was playing catch and uh, didn't have a great form, and people would make fun of him for years afterwards. 
Uh, like it's a knock on your athleticism or even uh, like your manhood. You can't throw a baseball. What are you doing? You can't throw a football. I will say, though, uh, Canelo and, and like I remember McGregor when he first threw out a pitch and it mm-hmm. went like, oh, incredibly. yeah, those guys are different type of athletes. Their That's their true. mindset is is much different than us. But they are, you know, at the top of their sports. So they're some of the best athletes in the world. They can't throw baseballs. I don't know why, but it's probably because they've been, you know, beating people's faces and for 20-plus years. Oh, it's true. He would knock, those guys would knock my head off. But I could probably throw a better baseball. Max Kellerman was disappointing. <laughs> I do like uh, – I, 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 I like Max Kellerman. But what's so disappointing is that he grew up in New York City. Yeah. You would think he grew up, like, at the parks playing pickup basketball. You probably didn't see the video. You'd have to go see it online. It is atrocious, his form on shooting a foul shot. And then he shared on the show that he practiced 200 foul shots, and he said uh, he made – I think it was 15%. That is unbelievable. I think you could blindfold my mother and she could make 15%. Like, how do you shoot 200 foul shots? You only make 30? That was embarrassing. He emphasized too much. I know they say, you know, keep whatever your non-dominant hand a little bit off the ball. So you're basically kind of shooting with one hand. He took that to the extreme where he literally just put like a (laughs) shot putt, just pushed the ball up in the air where, no, you can still put your hand out there. It's just a little bit more control on the ball. Yeah, it was bad. that was a bad luck for a New York City kid who works in sports. Yeah. Now, he was also, Kellerman's also a boxer, so I guess there's something about these fighters that they just didn't play the other sports. I grew up playing all the sports. I wasn't a good enough athlete. That's why I talk about sports for a living instead of play them. But I at least could, I wouldn't completely embarrass myself. I would look like I've shot a basketball before, thrown a baseball before, or football, because, of course, I did that growing up. Now, that leads me to my next question. If you can only choose one, you could either be like a great shooter you could be great at throwing a football. You could be great at throwing a baseball. I'm not talking about for a professional career. Okay. You are you right now, but you could be incredibly good at one of these things. What would you pick? Like, what would be the most impressive that if you and your buddies were just hanging out, you pick up a basketball, baseball, football, and you can wow people. Like, wow, look at this guy throw either a baseball, basketball, football. What do you think would be the most impressive skill to have? I think I've already got the football locked down. So I would say the basketball. I feel like picking up a basketball, being able to just light it up from deep is probably one of the more cooler things you can do in your friend group. That, you know, the street cred goes up about one or two points. Yeah, that's a good way to that's, – see, that's the question. Yeah. Yeah, which one gets you, like, the most street cred? Yeah, I mean, if you can, if you got a good jumper, I think overall, especially, like, you know, you pl- you're playing pick-up basketball tonight, hopefully, if it doesn't rain, so, you know, potentially. But, yeah, I think shooting would be more important in our lives now. It's like I can still throw a football, throw a baseball whenever I have a child one day, but if I can go when I'm 40 with the boys we're going to play on a Sunday morning, yeah, I want to be able to drain a couple threes. I agree with you. Now, I thought maybe it was just because I had a basketball. You know, I just grew up. Basketball is always the sport. Right. But I do have that same feeling that if you show up to a park and you're just knocking down threes, I think that's more impressive than, like, being able to whip a baseball or a football at the, at the beach. You know, you throw a football into the water. Like, that's good and well. I don't know. If you're knocking down uh, the three-pointers at, at your buddy's driveway, I think that's probably the best. Anyways, I saw this clip. You could go find that line. But Canelo, the worst than even the throw is he's warming up in the, in the clubhouse, and uh, it's just terrible form. And, uh, not good. Great fighter, great boxer, uh, but obviously I guess didn't grow up playing baseball because he can't throw a baseball. That's a bad sign, right? If you see someone, they don't know what they're doing with a baseball. That's uh, a knock on them. i got to be honest, especially if they're an athlete. When we come back, we'll get to Trent's takes. Tomorrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Yeah, this one right here goes out to all the babies, mamas, mamas. Mamas, mamas. <laughs> Baby mamas, mamas. Yeah, go like this. I'm sorry, Miss Jackson. 
It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Just got the email from friend of the show, Paul Charchian, about the guillotine leagues for this year. So you know football's coming right around the corner. Now, Trent, you're not a fan. Of, you haven't been a fantasy football player lately, right? No, but I want to. I want to. I mm. might have to hop in a league you're in or, you know, one of yeah. our interns back here. If they got a league, I can join because I don't want to, you know, make a league and, you know, hassle everybody for money or whatever. I just want to join in. Whatever the buy-in is, let's roll. We'll have to get you into one of Charch's uh, guillotine leagues. Yeah. Those are always fun. Why not? Hey, we do it around this time each and every day. Find out what's on the mind of the producer. It's time for Trent's Takes. What's on the mind of the Morrow Midday Show producer? Draft Luke Morrow. That's Panther. right. It's time for Trent's Takes. The Radio Cowboy will be coming, and he's coming soon, folks. Luke, real quick, a uh, movie question for you because you are a movie savant. As we know, I've seen majority of Leo's movies because I'm a big Leo guy. I don't think I've ever seen The Aviator, and I was scrolling uh. through HBO Max last night just trying to find something to watch. Couldn't really pinpoint i never seen uh, 12 years of slaves so i was thinking about watching that but i didn't want to get sad so i was looking at the aviator but also the, the aviator right like follows a billionaire who's got a lot of depression and things of that nature but it won an oscar so i was going to ask you if you've ever seen the aviator and is it worth the two hours and 35 minutes that i'd watch it i would say definitely okay now i haven't seen it since i just looked it up it came out in 2004 i saw it like when it first came out on maybe it was vhs back then. okay so i probably saw it last time i've only saw it seen it once and it was probably you know, 16, 17 years ago. But, yeah, excellent movie. I really liked it at the time. It's Scorsese. Yeah. It's Leo. It's a good story. I watched it with my family at the time. Uh, I think we all loved it. Yeah, good movie. I recommend The Aviator. Yeah, I mean, as soon as I saw Scorsese with Leo, I said, oh, this could be a banger, as we know. But I was just – I wanted to clarify with you before I spent about three hours yeah. watching the film, you know, because and it's one, I feel like it's one of those where it might get slow in the middle and really pick up at the end. So, you know, I got to really bunker down and get ready to go for it. But I'm pumped. I think I'm going to watch it tonight and tune in tomorrow for Trent's Takes with a full review on The Good. Aviator. So uh, I'll probably keep doing that because we're in a slow time in sports. Speaking of slow time, do I have to mention this, Luke? Plants have been unveiled for a nuclear nuclear powered, excuse me, Sky Hotel that can carry about 5,000 people, basically a cruise ship in the sky. Now, Luke, we've mentioned on the show before, I would love to go to space. If I could get in one of these Blue Origin SpaceX rockets, send me up there. I'd absolutely love to go and see it for, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes. But I don't want to be, you know, 40,000 feet in the air with 5,000 other people on a cruise ship-sized plane that is powered, you know, nuclear-powered. And, uh, yeah, that just doesn't sound like something I'd enjoy. What if it, you know, what if something goes wrong? We're in the sky. It's like on water it's a little different because it's easily accessible. Now it's like, oh, we're just in the sky. How, how can anything get done? I, I don't understand it. I'm with you 100%. I watched this video. So my first thought was because they showed they have, like, a shopping mall inside. They have restaurants. It's like a hotel. They said they have a space for meetings. They have a theater. They have uh, uh, games for kids. Yeah. I thought, how – does the flight never end? Like, what's? Why do you need all this on a plane? And then they said the plane it could tra- it could be a, a year, like it could be in the air for years. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't get this. What? What is the point? So it's just supposed to be like a cruise, but in the air? Like you go spend a week on a plane flying around for why? I, I don't get this idea. I would not want to do it. I'm with you. Yeah. If there's an issue in the ocean, I can at least swim. Uh, I could tread water. <laughs> Hopefully, we're near close uh, enough to land. They have boats that you could jump on, like in the Titanic, to get to shore. When you, if something goes wrong in the air, like sorry, I mean, there's not much you can do. Uh, I do not get this idea, and uh, 
it's not appealing to me. No, and hopefully if you're in the water, Rose scoots over just a tad bit. Because, <laughs> I mean, what are we doing? There was enough room for Leo. Unbelievable. Uh, Luke, uh, last night San Francisco Giants get a win against the Detroit Tigers. Shout out to my boy Mike Yarmensky, absolutely dominant, was playing in the field, had a diving catch, phenomenal win, 4-3. Five games back of the Dodgers right now, three and a half back from the Padres going into the All-Star break. You're more of a baseball savant than I am, Luke. I'm just kind of getting into this ball game. I like the direction the San Francisco Giants are going right now. I like the margin of victories to be a little bigger against these teams like the Detroit Tigers. I believe they're a one-and-a-half point favor going into the game, beat them by one. That's okay. But right now, do you think the San Francisco Giants are in a decent position to potentially make a run in the playoffs? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, that's such a tough division. Now, I've been talking this week uh, in other areas about, you know, the, the best teams usually come from the best divisions, so that could be a good thing for the Giants. But you look at the NL, it's a blessing and a curse because um, yeah. because it makes it harder for the Giants to try to win enough games to get into the playoffs. The Central is pretty bad, and right now the East, outside of the Mets and the Braves, are pretty bad. So that NL West probably is going to get three playoff teams, the Giants, Padres, and Dodgers. Uh, but it's going to make it harder for the Giants. They may be like the last team in because they have to play the Dodgers 19 times and the Padres 19 times. But um, – Iron sharpens iron, they say. So, uh, you know, in the long haul, maybe they'll be better off for it. But the Giants certainly are a top six team in the NL. They should be a playoff team. And uh, I think they could uh, make some noise in October, hopefully. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking potentially I get invited out to the championship parade if it happens. You know, I'm just just kind of being hopeful here. I am the number one San Francisco Giants fan in the area. I claim that title. So thank you very much. Luke, we are 71 days, 71 days from NFL football. And so I ask you this question here. I'll give my answer, then I would like your answer. Which team out of these two has a better chance not going off their schedule right now? Let's think of division, conference, and the rosters that they have. Which team has a better chance of going starting the season 7-1? and one? Is it the Denver Broncos or the Dallas Cowboys? Based on divisions and strength, you know, as far as roster goes, right now I would have to say the Dallas Cowboys have a better chance of starting 7-1 and one than the Denver Broncos right now. I agree with you, just based off of uh, the division. Yeah. And the NFC East should be much easier than the AFC West. I think if all things were equal... I think I like the Broncos more than the Cowboys, sure. and I certainly like Russ more than Dak. But, yeah, because those divisions, the Cowboys, I mean, they could probably go 5-1 and one this year in their division, and the Broncos, like, if you go 500 in that division, that's still probably a success. So I would agree with you, just based off the of divisions, Cowboys have the uh, better chance of having a better start to the year, I would imagine. Folks, NFL football is right around the corner. I cannot wait. 71 days. We just got to get through 71 days, Luke. That's all it is. Quick side note here. How many times does Sam Acho have to say Patrick Mahomes will be better without Tyreek Hill? We can move on from that. Just a curious, you know, point that I'd like to bring up. He mentions it every single week. I mean, what are we doing? Tyreek Hill is one of the most prolific players in the NFL. He makes any team that he's with better. You could say Patrick Mahomes potentially will have a better stat season without Tyreek Hill, but he's, the team won't be better without Tyreek Hill I hate to break to you do you agree with that like I think I'm crazy I feel like I'm crazy for saying that the team probably won't be as good without one of the most prolific players in the NFL um yeah I guess I'm some, like I would not be like Sam Macho going out there every week saying that this is going to be better for Mahomes yeah, or better saying, for the yeah. Chiefs I'm I'm more with you where yeah I could see him like statistically having a better year the Chiefs winning more games or the offense looking better but I think if you had the option, you would still rather have Tyreek Hill yeah. on the team than not have him. Uh, I still think the Chiefs would be fine. But, yeah, I would say that uh, 
they would prefer, even they would, if they were being honest with you, they'd prefer to still have Tyreek if it wasn't for the amount of money he was asking for. Yeah, I mean, they say it's hot boy summer, but it's hot take summer for Sam Macho right now, and he's absolutely crushing it. Luke, another uh, odds question here, switching over to college football. Mm -hmm. Does Texas A&M or Texas have a better chance to win 10-plus games this season? I'll give you the odds real quick. A&M is at plus 130, but let's remember, A&M is in the SEC East, especially during the SEC West. Incredibly difficult. Texas is plus 200 right now to win uh, 10-plus games in the Big 12. We don't know what Quinn Ewers is going to look like right now. The offense sure looks good with the amount of talent they have surrounding a young quarterback like Quinn Ewers. Who has a better chance right now to win 10-plus games? It's a good question. I think I still take my chances with A&M. Wow. Because I just think they're that much better than Texas. Texas is in the weaker conference. But they won only five games last year, so you're asking for them to double their record, which is a lot. A&M, they won, uh, what, I think eight last year? Can you add two more wins this year? I know it's a really tough conference, but I think that's more realistic to see that improvement even in the SEC. They were almost a playoff team two years ago, so they have it in them. Texas, I still have a lot of questions about Texas. I got to see Quinn Ewers first before I could believe in that team. I think uh, Texas right now is very overvalued. So I would probably take my chances with A&M even in the tougher SEC. I got you. No doubt about it. Yeah, I mean – I feel like, I don't know, I feel like I'm the only one that's really high on Southern Cal this year and really high on Texas this year. I feel like I, I want them to be back just because it makes college football better. As we always say, we need more parity. Now, granted, if Texas or Southern Cal gets into the college football playoff and they have to take on an Alabama, an Ohio State, or a Georgia, good luck. That's all I got to say to you. But, I mean, it would be nice to see a couple more faces kind of get in the mix here as we get down maybe in the top 10, top 5, and then obviously the college football playoff. Uh, last thing here, Luke Morrow, I forgot to mention, mention this about the uh, the plane, uh, excuse me, the cruise in the sky, if you will. Did you see the recent video of the Viking cruise that uh, they lost power to their engine and they were in a massive wave storm? And so there were people sitting oh, like in this beautiful lounge and the, the engines cut off. And so the boat, like literally people are sliding down the floors, going into the oh windows left and right. There's pianos flying everywhere. This is why I'm not a cruise guy. I'm not a cruise guy. The ocean, I, I swim in the ocean, love the ocean, go out there all the time. But the deep ocean, Luke Mar, when you get out there where you can't see anything, that's when I don't mess with the ocean. They were in the middle of nowhere. The wind was howling. The waves were big. And they've got furniture flying everywhere. People are sliding left and right. Not a cruise guy for that sole reason right then and there. I got to look up this video. I did not hear about this. I'll send it to you. Yeah, yeah. that is brutal. I've been on three cruises. I don't care to ever go on another one. <laughs> the last one I went on was uh, in March, and the waters were still rough because it was still you know, kind of cold around here. Sure. And that, was, that one was tough. Oh, you went out of here? Yeah, uh, out of, uh, I think it was Baltimore. Oh, okay. Out of Maryland. So, and it was still, you know, it was March, so like in certain areas, the water's still cold. I don't know if there's still like ice in the water, whatever, you know, and so it's choppy until we got to the tropical islands. So, yeah, the first couple of days were brutal. They had to tape up barf bags in all the hallways because so many people were getting seasick see i mean what are we doing there i'm on this boat for a week and we and you know it's mandatory barf bags over (laughs) here on the plane it makes sense it's right in front of me i'm only here for three hours fortunately i was fine and um but yeah a lot of people i think everybody in my group was fine i don't think we really had an issue but a lot of people were getting sick you do you get seasick Knock on wood, I ha- I never had an issue with that. Yeah, I don't get seasick. I have a problem. Plain, same idea. Knock on wood. Like I don't, I don't have a problem. My biggest issue is actually in the car. Like I can't read in the car. I get mm. car sick. Oh, so like going through Twitter or something. Even that. Even that. Wow. After a little while, I got to be careful. If I'm on my phone for after like for a good amount of time, like after a half hour, it's like all right, I got to put the phone away. I'm getting a little nauseous. But yeah, I can't. I can't like read a magazine or a book in the car. 
I really can't do it. Even like I don't like really watching things in the car either. So for whatever reason, the car gives me the most trouble, or even like a bus. But... Can you sleep in a car or plane? Oh yeah, I can sleep anywhere. Yeah. Dang, I can't. I can't do it. I don't sleep on planes anymore though because uh, I found that whenever I'd sleep on a plane and then I get to my destination. I would feel, like, uh, so exhausted, and my theory was always from, like, dehydration. Sure, yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. So now I say I can't fall asleep. I stay up, and I make sure I'm just sitting there drinking water the whole time so yeah. that when I land, I feel good. So that's my problem. So I stopped sleeping on planes because I used to – that would be the only thing I'd do. I'd sleep the whole flight, and then I'd land, and, I, you know, I wasn't drinking any – I wasn't hydrating. You're all out of whack, too. Yeah. Like, you, you don't know where you are. You wake up. I, I don't sleep on planes anymore because I fell asleep on somebody's shoulder one time <laughs> sitting next to me, yeah. and that was super embarrassing. The guy was very nice, but I was just like, was I asleep on you the entire time? And he was like, yeah, just about. I didn't want to wake you. I was like, oh, man. Yeah, that's the worst. I'm always afraid of that. <laughs> you're nodding off, and you're, you're slowly leaning into your passenger. That's always a bad look. We'll wrap up hour two next. It's the more midday show on ESPN Radio. WTMZ 98.9 FM, WTMZ 910 AM and 94.7 FM, W234CD, Dorchester Terrace, Brentwood, Charleston. This is the Morrow Midday Show. But wait, there's more. On ESPN Radio. Final hour of the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Coming up, uh, uh, ESPN.com did a piece on Rob Manfred. We'll highlight that in a moment. Plus, Freddie Freeman firing his agent. And also, which of the college football programs could get, quote-unquote, back first? And Arch Manning, the domino effect of Arch Manning's announcement last week with Texas. Gets all that throughout the hour here in the Morrow Midday Show. You can... um. Always find the show on demand if you ever miss anything. Find the podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. Just search ESPN Radio Charleston. And the podcast is also available online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Head over to charlestonsportsradio.com. Click on our show page, and you can leave a comment there for the show. Get to us on Twitter at Morrow Middays. You can text the show, 843-608-1734. Or join the conversation on the phones, 843 843- Seven two one nine five zero zero. Hey, still time to make it over to Cruise Subaru today because they have a blood drive going on right now until four p.m. So if you're in the area over there in North Charleston or not too far away, head over there. You got a couple more hours to donate blood, and all donors will receive a thirty-five dollar gift card for service parts and accessories at Cruise Subaru. And also, if you give a pint, you get a pint. When you donate blood uh, today at Crew Subaru, you get a free pint of frozen custard at Culver's. I think Bobby, isn't Bobby doing fan talk today from uh, from Cruz? Yeah, so I think his plan right now is to potentially go over, give some blood during a commercial break, and grab a pint of custard. So yeah. uh, good for him. I think that's why he's out there. All about that <laughs> custard. So uh, if you're in the area, still got time. Head over there. Donate some blood. Help save a life. Get uh, some good stuff out of it as well. Other than just helping people, you also get a $35 gift card. 
and you get a pint of custard at Culver's. I assume Culver's then is in North Charleston. I don't think I've seen a Culver's. I haven't gone to buy one. Let me uh, let me see where it is. Uh, Somerville maybe, but uh, uh, yeah. let me yeah uh, North North Main Street in Somerville. Well, that's why like. I do enjoy a good Culver's, but man, I'm not going all the way to Somerville. We have uh, we certainly we have plenty of listeners in Somerville, so uh, get yourself a pint of uh, custard at Culver's. We'll get to some baseball stuff now. We always do what we have a daily segment we do every day called Trent's Takes, but I always get. Trent's takes throughout the afternoon as well. You know, as I uh, always say, there's always givers and there's takers in life, and we do both around here because we give you a lot of takes. So we're giving and taking. That's what we do on the Morrow Midday Show. Let me ask you, though, Trent, best time in the day to go get a haircut. What would you say? You just got a haircut recently. Mm. I just got a haircut recently. Obviously, it's radio, so nobody could tell. I could be lying to you right now, but I did actually just get a haircut. What's the best time of the day to go get a haircut in terms of the type of performance you're going to get from the barber or or hairstylist? I would say you don't want to be the first appointment and you don't want to be the last appointment. I usually go anywhere. So, you know, I got to get into the office around 1030. So I usually go at nine in the morning. I'm usually, you know, our guy's first appointment, uh, you know, of the day. Don't really love being in that spot. Shout out, Mason, if you're listening. Love you, buddy. But uh, don't really like being <laughs> in that spot. So I'd like to go maybe two or three just to knock the rust off a little bit. It's early in the morning, but you definitely don't want to be the last appointment of the day because they're, they want to get out of there. So that's, Absolutely. But I usually go 930 to 10 o'clock. I think the, the barber is uh, hitting the stride. I agree with you. I'm with you. I wouldn't want to be the first person either, certainly not the last. I went and got a haircut yesterday. I was the last person. Don't worry. This is not going to be me complaining about a haircut because it actually was a pretty good haircut. I'm pleased. Yeah, it looks good. For the most part. Um, it was just the idea, though, of absolutely, right? The person just – and I understand it. I, I'd be the same way in my uh, position. We've talked before about going into a restaurant, you know, 20 <laughs> minutes before they close. They, they're trying to get out of there. They don't want another customer. You like doing this, don't you? Just being the last guy. I'm always – I'm last minute with a lot of things I do. Uh, but in the case of this, it's because I don't do – I can't – I don't get anything done in the morning. I'm, I'm not a morning person. Mm. So I need to start, you know, I need a little while to start my day. Sure. And then by the time I get to that point, it's like, oh, I got to go be on the radio. <laughs> so I can't get anything done in the morning. You know, uh, I work out uh, each day. I go for a run. And my mother always said, why don't, you, why don't you get out of the way in the morning? I cannot wake up and go work out. I can't do anything in the morning. I am useless in the morning. So then I come in here, do the show. We're off the air at 3. So then that's why I usually get my things done after 3 o'clock. That's when I run my errands. And, uh, yeah, when it comes to, like, getting your hair cut, some of these places, depending, you know, they may close at 6, or they're just staggered, you know, the different barbers. Uh, they get off at different times. So, yeah, it, it usually works out that way, unfortunately. I'm walking into a place, and they'll say, oh, you're my last uh, customer for the day. It's like, oh, okay. Now, the job was done just fine. I'm pleased. But certainly there seemed to be a, a, a feeling of can't wait to get out of here. Right. It was a, a pretty quick haircut, and also, and I'm fine with it, but, Pretty much no banter whatsoever. Really? Oh, that's tough. That's one, tough. One thing was said. That's all. One thing? I mean, there was a few questions about the haircut. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You know, well, outside you of you want to go uh, shorter, but usually you go get a haircut. They make small talk. Oh with yeah. You. The entire. I'm. I, you know. I. You. As you know, I'm an elevator talker. Uh -huh. I. You know. I love the barbershop talk. I feel like it's. You know doctor uh, patient confidentiality like you really right. can air a lot of things out with the barber and they're just you know doing their job listening to mm -hmm. you and maybe we'll give you an opinion every so often but that's why i like the guy i go to now because i can talk to him for an hour and uh and it's always good conversation yes it could be therapeutic yesterday i got one question i think it was just like so how was your day 
And not only did I respond, but then I asked a question, you know, to keep the conversation. I didn't just say, oh, it was good. Good day. Yeah. No, I, you know, I followed, how, how's it been going around here? Have you been busy? Business good? Yeah, right. <laughs> Got nothing else. Which is fine with me. I don't need to be chatty. That's the other thing. When you talk on the radio, look, we're not digging ditches. But when you talk on the radio, the last thing you want to do is go home and, you know, talk some more. Uh, so I did. I, I, I actually kind of appreciated the, the come down that I just sat there in the chair. And I'll tell you what, I love a good haircut. I don't know oh, what yeah. it is. Oh, yeah. Something about it. Just, um, I'd have to ask Freud. Something from my childhood, I guess. I don't know. Just something <laughs> like even just sitting there, the noises, the feel. I like that. We should and have then, the psychologist on to see what true. that is. Yeah. yeah. And then, oh, you get the straight edge razor and the nice. hot towel. It's nice. And I didn't get, I didn't do the shampoo yesterday, but I love, like, I love a good head rub. <laughs> Absolutely. So same idea. If you get, get, you know, if you get your hair washed when they're digging in to, to get the shampoo in there and then the warm water, that feels nice. That's I usually good. don't do it. I, I usually don't do it. I don't know why. You know, I don't, I, I, I'm with, I don't do it when I go to a new place. No. Uh, I used to go to the same woman for years and she would always wash my hair and it felt good. Yeah, I always appreciated the, the head massage. But, yeah, I'm with you. Like, uh, uh, the place I went yesterday was the first time I went there. I don't know. There's something about uh, I got to feel comfortable. I don't want to go to a new place. Like, oh, sure, let me, let's go wash my hair. And then you sit down and everything, and you have this strange woman, like, rubbing her hands in your head. I don't know. <laughs> and strange in the sense that I don't know her. She wasn't a strange lady. She it was, was just, a stranger. She danger. was a stranger, <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, I'm with you. I usually don't do it either. Um, whenever I go to a place for the first time or first couple times, and they offer, like, you want to shampoo your hair? I'm like, ah, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Yeah, I'm trying to get out of here in an efficient time. Now, take your time cutting my hair, but I want to get right. out of here as efficiently as I usually wash it before I go. Yeah, right. That's like the uh, you you, bl- you brush your teeth before you go to the <laughs> dentist. You wash your hair. You clean your room before the person comes to clean the house because, uh, you know, you don't want to embarrass yourself. You can't show up with, like, dirty hair or something in your teeth. So you brush your hair be- or uh, brush your teeth before you go to the dentist so that you, you try to do your best performance. It's like the guy that does, uh, you know, push-ups. Before he answers the door when the, the, the date shows up. <laughs> You're trying to put your best foot forward. Just get to cut, you know, 20 curls in real yeah. quick. <laughs> I, we had to take pool class. We had to take swimming in high school. Did you really? Yeah, it was awful. I was lucky enough that it was the last period of my schedule. So okay. you could just go home after. Other kids would have pool class at the start of the day. You'd be sitting in math class later, and it would just reek of chlorine in the room. Oh, that's the worst. And they couldn't. I mean, they were showers, but you know how it is. Kids don't want to shower with one another because they were just those big showers. And you're in high school. So you don't want to get into the shower with your classmates and everything. So a lot of people wouldn't shower, or they'd shower with the bathing suit on, which obviously is in a full shower. And people wouldn't bring shampoo. They were just getting water. You try to rinse it off you. Anyways, long story short, one of the kids in my pool class, because it was mixed gender, it was men, and, it was boys and girls in this uh, swimming class, he used to do push-ups. We would uh, have to get changed in the locker rooms, the boys' locker room, the girls' locker room. And uh, this kid, Josh, would do push-ups uh, every time right before he walked out there so that he'd look a little more buff. Uh, as he uh, jumped in the pool with uh, the girls out there. So there you go. There's a little tip. Uh, just bu- pump out a little, a few push-ups. Pretend you have to use the bathroom. Go uh, drop down and get some push-ups done and come back out. Uh, put that best foot forward. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, the the veins only last for, what, about like 15 <laughs> minutes? And then and then you look at that, you, yeah. you start deflating a That's little right. bit as you're at dinner. It's like, were you just doing push-ups in the bathroom, <laughs> sir? Yeah. <laughs> But anyways, I agree with you. You don't want to be the last person, but I'd also say you don't want to be the first because not only are they just getting the day started in terms of, like, performance-wise, but the barber may also be, or any whatever the job may be, they may be looking at the long day of clients and 
thinking like, oh, boy, I got 10 haircuts today and try to blow through them. Where then, you know, by the time you get your the third client, okay, maybe they're a little ahead of schedule. The other haircuts didn't take as long or, you know, they had their coffee. They got comfortable. So I agree with you. Also, just a rule of thumb, I would also say try to avoid going around lunchtime. You don't want to get somebody just before they're about to take a break because, again, they're looking forward to eating. They're, they're hungry. They're about to take a break. They've been working all morning. Now they're about to have a half-hour break, whatever it is. And that's not just for haircuts. That's you know, probably wherever you go where someone's going to be providing a service. Uh, you don't want them first thing, last thing, or probably around their uh, lunchtime either. Anyways. Hey, um, ESPN.com put out an article today. It's a long piece on Rob Manfred. Now, I, uh, I'll be honest with you. I did not read the whole article, but I did read the takeaways. Don Van Natta Jr., wrote this for ESPN.com. You can go find it. It's on uh, the homepage for the MLB tab at ESPN.com, and it's a big article that they wrote with Rob Manfred. Now, ESPN, any Fox, right? anybody that carries baseball, they are partners as well with Major League Baseball. To me, this read by just reading a lot of the um, – just by reading the Clip Notes version, this really read as uh, a piece for Manfred and Major League Baseball to help the commissioner look like some sort of sympathetic figure. But some of the highlights, you could go read the full thing. But Rob Manfred said uh, he doesn't hate baseball. He wants to save it. And the quote is, yeah, here's the problem. This is Rob Manfred. Here's the problem. When you acknowledge there's something wrong with the game, that turns you into a hater of baseball, is what Rob Manfred said about people always saying, Manfred hates baseball. I think he's right, and I think he's wrong. I think he's right, but I don't think it applies here. I do agree with him. Anytime you're critical of something, people just call you a hater. Right, if you're critical, if you don't share the same opinion as most people, and therefore you must be, you know, slightly negative. But if you say like, ah, I don't think he is as good as most people think. They're, oh, you're such a, you're a Steph Curry hater, or a LeBron hater, or whatever it may be. You're automatically labeled a hater if you give some sort of negative opinion on something, when you just may be honest and maybe the the facts. You're not necessarily hating on somebody. So I get what Manfred's saying. Uh, that uh, we throw that term around, hater, anytime somebody is negative or they acknowledge that there is something wrong with, in this case, baseball. Right? Oh, you're a hater. If you say, like, ah, baseball, the games take a little too long. Baseball fans will say, oh, what a hater of baseball. Not necessarily. You could still love baseball and acknowledge that there are some things that need to be changed. However, while I think Manfred makes a fair point, I don't think it applies here because I don't think baseball fans are upset with the idea of baseball trying to change. I think it's the changes. I think most of the ideas Major League Baseball has come up with are pretty dumb. I have no issue with trying to adjust things. The NFL makes changes. The NBA has, right? No problem. We don't say that Roger Goodell hates football. I just think it's the ideas. They go, they're almost anti-baseball. You're trying to shorten the game. You can understand why people would say, like, yeah, he must not be a baseball fan. He, doesn't, he wants the games to get over with, right, by putting a runner at second base or the pitch clock. Right? I mean, you're trying to change the essence of the game itself. Baseball was always about going to the ballpark, and it's about the downtime and you know the, the, the conversations, very conversational. And you know going in, like, yeah, it's going to be three hours going to the ballpark, and it's going to be an all-day thing. And uh, the rules that are being implemented are kind of anti what the, the sport or people's love for the sport is kind of been, uh, built on. He continued by saying it's the most ridiculous thing in regards to Rob Manfred hating baseball. Among some fairly ridiculous things that get said about me, that one does rub me the wrong way, I have to tell you the truth, is what Rob Manfred said about people believing that he actually dislikes baseball. I did find this interesting. They asked him, how many hours of baseball do you watch in a week? He said, well, I would probably watch uh, in the evening at least four nights a week, a game or games. So 
So there's 12 hours, and then I always have it on in the office during the day, you know, if there's day baseball. I was surprised by this. That doesn't sound like a lot. Right, for a commissioner of baseball, he's watching a game maybe four times a week. I'm not the commissioner of baseball. I think I watch more baseball than that. Maybe that says something about me and uh, my free time, but I watch the Red Sox. I'm a Red Sox fan. I watch. The, I try to watch every game of the Red Sox. They're playing. I'm tuning in, even if it's on my phone, and you know I'm here at work, and they're playing during the day. I'll check it out. Always tuned in. I found that surprising. Now, look, he's the commissioner, so he, he's just got to know what's going on in the sport. But I would also say, like, that's the idea, right? You're running the sport. You think you'd be paying attention? It'd be like if you were running a restaurant. That's why people always suggest don't get in the restaurant business. You're going to be there all the time. Uh, you want to know what's going on at your place of business. Right, if you're running Major League Baseball, I think you'd be tuning in like at all times. You'd want to know what's going on in your sport. Then they asked him, what's your biggest aggravation when you watch baseball just as a fan? When you take your commissioner hat off, you're home for the night, you're relaxing, you tune into a game, what's your biggest uh, complaint? Um, he said, uh, I think the same sort of sentiments that we hear from our fans in terms of pace of the game. I think the pace issue, the action issue, is more acute in a broadcast than it is at the ballpark. So, yeah, he also went on to talk about average game length of uh, the games. And uh, there's a quote in here from the owner of the St. Louis Cardinals that said the game has changed and has changed for the worse. Manfred said that uh, he's talking about um, pitch clocks, elimination of the shift most likely next year, robo-umpires maybe as soon as 2024, other changes that could be coming to the game, and uh, so on and so forth. There's a lot here in this article. You could go read it. I also saw that Rob Manfred uh, makes $18 million a year, which seems crazy. But obviously there's a lot of money being brought into the sport. And he says, uh, the last thing I'll, I'll pass along, you could go read the article if you're interested, is Manfred, uh, when asked how he thinks he'll be remembered or how he would like to be remembered, he said, most fans will probably remember me as that crazy guy in New York who couldn't stop messing with baseball. That's going to be on my tombstone. He tinkered with the game until they got rid of him, is what Rob Manfred said. It kind of paints, I think the idea is to paint Man Manfred as this sympathetic figure, just trying to help the game and unfairly maligned by baseball fans. My point has always been in all this, whenever we talk baseball, everybody always resorts to, oh, the games are too long. That's the problem with baseball. They need to shorten the games. I've always said it's not necessarily the length of the games. It's the action within the games. College football games have become increasingly and ridiculously long. You'll watch the national championship game in college football. It'll take over four hours. Nobody complains. Why? Because there's just a ton of action. right? You have the 40 seconds of downtime, if that, in between plays, but then it's play after play after play. And then you get a hurry-up offense, and you get a lot of points scored, and you get big hits and throwing the football around. And nobody complains like, wow, this Big 12 game just took five hours, and they scored 70 points because you're entertained. We were talking uh, last hour about a movie. Should you watch The Aviator when it's three hours? You don't mind so much watching a long movie if it's a really good movie. But you ever go to the theater? and it's a long movie, and it's a bore, you can't wait to get out of there. Other times, you watch that exciting movie that's three hours long, and when it's over, you think, wow, already? It's already over. That was a quick three hours. When you're entertained, right, things go quickly. When you are miserable or you're going through something, you're, going to, you're at the dentist, talk about the dentist once again, right, and it feels excruciating because you hate being at the dentist, and it feels a lot longer than it is. Major League Baseball, if you go back to the year 2000, 22 years ago, Games this year are taking, on average, three hours and seven minutes. If you go back to 2000, they took three hours and one minute. So in 22 years, we've added six minutes. Is that really that big of a deal? Do you think six minutes will really have a huge impact on your life or your night 
Like, man, I really want to watch the Braves game, but it's going to take an extra six minutes tonight to get through this. And the great thing about baseball, of course, is that you can come and go. I love that the games take a long time. You go out to the pool, right? You have a cookout on July 4th. You go have something to eat. You go to the grill. You, you chat with somebody. Then you turn back to the TV. It's an inning later, right? It's just, uh, it, it is that, it's supposed to be that pastime that you talk about. It's just there to help pass the time. You have it on in the background. You're doing some work at home. You look up every once in a while. You're listening to the game. Driving around on a long car trip, right? You got the game on the radio. Uh, that's, that's always been the idea, that it's there to help you pass the time. But we've added six minutes in 22 years. Is that really a, you know, a big issue? I think the bigger issue is you go back to 2000 and compare it today. Baseball, these last three years, have set records for fewest stolen bases, most strikeouts, lowest batting average, fewest runs scored. That's the big issue. We can talk about pace of play and the games take too long and there's too much downtime. No, what it is is there's not enough action. Not enough balls being put in play. Not enough guys in motion. You watch a baseball game, they either hit a home run. There's no action there. Once the ball lands, the play's over. Then they round the bases. And once it goes over the fence and no one's making a play on it, it's a home run. How exciting. We see that five times a night. You're watching a strikeout, eh, right? Not a ton of action. I mean, I always love a good pitcher's duel, but most of these strikeouts, it's more bad hitting. Or you're watching a walk, which is probably the most boring thing in baseball. Guy takes four pitches and then trots down to first. Like, all right, that was exciting. Biggest issue in baseball, it doesn't matter if baseball games take four hours. If it's a thrilling four hours, you're paying attention. That's where I think, that's why people always say baseball, playoff baseball is great. Because the big difference about playoff baseball is just the intensity of the moment. That every pitch is so important. Playoff games take over four hours. But you're on the you're edge of the seat. If you're a Braves fan, think back to last postseason. They went on that World Series run. Games would take four and a half hours, right? But you were at the edge of your seat the whole time. Because there was exciting. Even with all the downtime. Even with the lack of action. Because every pitch was so important and the downtime would just build suspense. That's the big thing for baseball. There's just not enough urgency in the regular season, and there's not enough action in the games. Like, I'll also say this, and I'm not one for shortening the season, but I do understand that thought process because uh, I did hear some media members actually talking baseball today nationally, which was great. But what they were talking about was, unfortunately, my Boston Red Sox and how they uh, blew another game in Toronto last night because they're missing uh, their unvaccinated closer who can't play in Canada. And they lost another game in the ninth inning in Toronto uh, for the second time this year. But the conversations were, well, if the season were to end today, the Red Sox and the Blue Jays would be playing in the postseason, and the Blue Jays would have home field advantage. The Red Sox would have to go to Toronto. And I get that, and that could be a concern. But you also understand it's June 29th, and the Red Sox are a half game behind the Blue Jays. So you're talking about home field advantage in a playoff series when there's still more than half the season to go. So that's also part of the problem with baseball. That this, Yeah, it is a big story that you know the Red Sox lost a big game because uh, their closer is unavailable to them on this road trip. Not ideal. But if you're also going to worry about what could this mean for October, I don't know. Let's find out over the next three months. So there's no real urgency. Somebody gets off to a slump in April. It's like, okay, well, let's see how they do over the next five months before we freak out about a slow start for uh, Ronald Acuna or Freddie Freeman or Bryce Harper or pick your favorite baseball player. The big issue for baseball is not necessarily how long the games take, but it's just the lack of action. Or maybe the lack of urgency as well plays a role. When you watch a game and you only see, you know, a third of the ball is actually put in play, it's like, all right, well, this is kind of exhausting. It'd be like watching football and they kneel on, uh, uh, you know, two-thirds of the plays. Ah, this play, we're actually not going to do anything. We're just going to take a knee this time. Maybe we'll throw it next time. All right, maybe the next guy will put the ball in play. This guy struck out. 
It'd be boring. Basketball would be like if there was a shot clock violation on two-thirds of the possessions. Eh, we're not going to take a shot this time. Maybe next possession down we'll actually uh, do something that's entertaining. This time we're just going to dribble it out until the shot clock expires. That's like a guy stepping to the plate and striking out. All right, well, that was enthralling. That was exciting. There needs to be more action in baseball. So while Manfred and everybody focuses on the length of, oh, we're up to three hours and seven minutes. we got to cut that down with pitch clocks. How about you find a way to put the ball and play more? And unfortunately, I don't know how we change that because that's just the direction the sport's gone with analytics and the way that these guys are groomed to play. Joey Gallo starts every game for the Yankees. He's batting 168. Nobody cares. That's a problem. And banning the shift won't do anything either. You think suddenly Joey Gallo's going to be getting a lot more hits? No, he's swinging for the fences anyways, no matter where your infielders are. But you can go read the full piece online, MLB.com, uh, with the sit-down with, with uh, Rob Manfred. I think it's uh, the idea is to help the commissioner look a little bit better, but I also think he's missing the most important point. Stop focusing on how long the games are. Make them more interesting games, and then people won't mind tuning in for the extra six minutes. Oh, by the way, if you go back, the other thing I was going to say, I compared it to 2000, but if you go back to, uh, let's see here, 1994, let's pick. 94, so almost 30 years ago. The average game was two hours and 57 minutes. This year, three hours and seven minutes. So in 28 years, we've added 10 minutes. Is that really a huge deal? Is that really a big difference? you got to spend 10 more minutes watching baseball now than you did 30 years ago? You have to go back to the 70s for the last time games were dramatically shorter. Also, so too were commercial breaks and sponsors and everything else, and the game was different. You'd use one reliever instead of four. But that was a long time ago. You talk about, oh, games took two and a half hours. Yeah, 50 years ago. It's been a long time. Hey, coming up, which of uh, the top-tier programs in college football could get back sooner? We'll get to that next. It's the more Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Which beloved college football program will get "quote unquote" back first? The more midday show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Plenty of reasons to be excited about said programs. USC, right? They have high expectations. They're picked to win the conference this year. They won four games last year. This year, they're conference favorites because you bring in Lincoln Riley, Caleb Williams, top receiver in the country. Uh, you know, all sorts of different guys. A lot of talent brought into USC, and it's a pretty poor division or conference, I should say. Miami, just by simply bringing in Mario Cristobal, there was a level of excitement. And then the job that he's done in recruiting since arriving. LSU, maybe not as excited because Brian Kelly's kind of embarrassed himself a little bit this offseason, but you do get a guy who has won at a high level, and he's coming in, and uh, you think he could be the next coach to win a national championship at LSU. Notre Dame's excited because they got a young, energized head coach in Marcus Freeman, and Marcus Freeman... I haven't looked at the rate. It's too early to look at recruiting rankings. But for a while there, they had the number one recruiting class for next year. Again, it's far too soon. Things are going to change. But he got a great head start in recruiting that everyone's looking at that and thinking, wow, right, this guy, he could be something special. So Miami, Notre Dame. Oh, and then, of course, Texas. You get Arch Manning. And even though he's not even going to be on campus for a little while, still, Texas fans are really excited. In fact, Texas has added seven recruits since Arch Manning's commitment. 
That's the Manning effect. You want to go play with this kid. You want to just be around him. You hope Peyton's going to show up to one of the games. Or Eli. Right? Get to know the Manning family. Maybe even learn a thing or two from those quarterbacks. Like if you're a wide receiver or something, right? It could really help you. Just be around the Manning family. Can't hurt. Here is Pete Thamel on ESPN talking about the uh, latest with Arch Manning's commitment to Texas. As everyone's wondering, is this what brings Texas back? Here is Thamel. Yeah, obviously the family's lineage is so deeply rooted in the SEC that Texas was a little bit of a surprise, Ryan. But I, I really think from talking to Nelson Stewart, who's the coach at Isidore Newman and Arch Manning's high school coach and a longtime friend of the Manning family, the relationship with Steve Sarkeesian, the Texas head coach and one of the best offensive minds in college football. Remember, Steve Sarkeesian was Matt Leinert's quarterback coach 20 years ago at USC. He obviously was with the run of Jalen Hurts, Tua Tungavailoa, and Mac Jones at Alabama recently. He's a deft, experienced quarterback guy, a great play caller, and he is clearly the best guy the Manning family thinks to take Arch Manning from high school prospect to NFL prospect. That was Pete Thamel talking about Arch Manning choosing Texas and why he did so. Yeah, Steve Sarkeesian, like it's big. And you look at his track record, maybe not as a head coach, but he's got a good track record as an offensive coordinator and working with quarterbacks. As Pete said, he was Matt Leinert's coach, uh, offensive coordinator, back at USC 20 years ago. And then you look at the job done at Alabama, developing Mac Jones into an NFL quarterback, and then recruiting Bryce Young and getting Bryce Young from California to come all the way to play at Alabama. And then getting Quinn Ewers to come to Texas. Now getting Arch Manning to come to Texas. Sarkeesian's becoming the new Lincoln Riley. When we look at Lincoln Riley and say, like, wow, look at all these quarterbacks he's getting and developing. Sarkeesian right now is bringing in all these quarterbacks one after another that future quarterbacks are going to go uh, want to go play for that guy. But there's one, you know, it's one thing to get that talent there. It's another than to then turn that into wins. Sarkeesian's always been a good recruiter. Even at Washington, he did a pretty good job in recruiting. You know, at USC, he did a solid job when he was the head coach. But can he win enough? He did not year one of Texas. Can he do it now with Quinn Ewers and uh, Arch Manning? Let's look at these teams. Which one of these teams is the best chance to win a national championship first? You have your Miami. You got your LSU, Notre Dame, USC, and then throw in Texas, even though this is Sarkeesian's second year. These other coaches are all in their first year. And then also, when you want to talk about first-year coaches, throw in Oklahoma with Brent Venables and Oregon with uh, Dan Lanning as well. So of those seven programs, who has the best chance to win first? If we looked at this one by one, Oklahoma and Oregon would probably be the ones I cross off first. Oklahoma couldn't win with Lincoln Riley. I don't think they're going to win a national championship in the near future with Brent Venables. Not in the Big 12. Then they join the SEC, and I think they'll be behind the eight ball. Now, eventually, you know, if they can catch up to the SEC and just become like any other program, then sure, maybe. Or they could be like uh, LSU or Georgia. But right now, uh, I'm not all that high in Oklahoma, at least certainly in the first year of Brent Venables and probably the first couple years. They're an offensive program now turning into a defensive program on their way out of the Big 12, first-time head coach. If Lincoln Riley couldn't get it done, I don't know if I feel better about Venables now doing a better job. Oregon, similar. Mario Cristobal couldn't get it done. Dan Lanning, it's the first time as a head coach. They'll be able to recruit there because of their financial backing. But now you have USC stepping up in the uh, Pac-12. So I don't know about Oregon either. Those are also two of the, the teams that are kind of on the outside of this list looking in anyways. The other programs are more... Um, I don't know, you know, people look forward to USC being good again. 
Miami, Texas. I don't think you have those same conversations about an Oregon or even an Oklahoma. Oklahoma's always been just so consistent. Notre Dame, I'm not all that high. I'm, uh, Notre Dame, it's hard to win even when Brian Kelly's there. And Marcus Freeman, I think, needs to prove himself. I think there's a lot of questions. He may be a good recruiter, but can he win? He's very young. Hasn't been coaching at this level for a long time. First-time head coach. And he's a defensive coach. I lean more to having offensive head coaches. So I have my doubts about Marcus Freeman. I don't think Notre Dame's in a position where they can be winning national championships these days. We've seen them get blown out by the top teams in football in the big games. And I think if Brian Kelly couldn't get it done, despite getting to the playoff or getting to a national championship, I don't know if Marcus Freeman will be able to break through. And then when you look at the other programs, USC, Miami, Texas, LSU, all of them have an appeal. When it comes to Texas, just the quarterback play. Quinn Ewers is the top quarterback in uh, his class. Arch Manning's the top quarterback in his class. In fact, if you look at the recruiting rankings, they're some of the highest-rated recruits ever at the position. And quarterback is so important nowadays. So could Texas actually win a national championship in the near future? Well, they'll have the quarterbacks to try to get it done. Will they have the coach? Will they have the other pieces? Friend of the show, Brad Crawford, just tweeted within the last 20 minutes that every every speed threat and offensive lineman want to go play with Arch Manning at Texas. And so they're going to bring in some talent. Now they are joining the SEC in a couple of years. That will make things more difficult. But they at least have the quarterbacks, and that's probably the biggest box to check. LSU, they have the history and the tradition. Their last three coaches have all won a national championship. You could maybe make the case this is the easiest place to win for these coaches, of these coaches that have moved around. Right, LSU is probably the best job to have, even though it's in the SEC. And I'm a big Brian Kelly guy. Brian Kelly uh, was able to win at Notre Dame. He was able to hit that ceiling. He was able to take them as far as he could. Could LSU give him the pieces to take that final step of winning a national championship? I think so. Then you get to Miami and USC. USC is obvious in the terms of the amount of talent they're bringing in, open conference, and the history of USC. Is it that far-fetched to see USC returning to the top of the sport again under Lincoln Riley? I don't think so. I don't think it'll be this year, but I could see it happening. And then there's Miami, where Mario Cristobal, right, it's very exciting. He returns home. But you look at what Miami has done in recruiting has been fantastic. They just, you could say, stole that quarterback from Florida State, maybe because of uh, name, image, likeness, or from Florida, uh, maybe because of name, image, likeness. But why would you doubt that Miami wouldn't be able to do the same thing moving forward with the amount of money that they have in that program? And the thing about Cristobal is that he does have an SEC background. Right, coming from Alabama originally. And I imagine he'll build Miami much like an SEC team. I think Clemson was as good as they were in the ACC, obviously because of the quarterback play, coaching. But a big part was they were always so good in, in the defensive trenches and their front seven. And so when they'd go up against, even last year, when they went up against Georgia, the big difference was Clemson wasn't good enough at quarterback. But defensively, they could match Georgia you know, player for player last year. I mean, that defense was still second best in the country last year, only behind Georgia in terms of fewest points allowed for Clemson. They get, you know, SEC players on an ACC level. I think Mario Cristobal will be able to do something similar at Miami. And Cristobal, is a, he's an offensive line guy. So I think he will make sure they get those bodies in the trenches. I think that's always the biggest issue. SEC teams may be quicker. They may have more speed. They may just be more skilled. But also, when you go up against some of these SEC teams, right, the the – talent that they have in the trenches specifically can be overwhelming for these other conferences, especially like in Oklahoma when they used to match up in those playoff games. 
I think Miami, crystal ball, will get them to a point in which they'll be able to battle these SEC schools in the trenches as well. I mean, he's always been great with the offensive line. I think they'll bring in a lot of talent on defense. So when it comes to which one of these teams could win a national championship first, and I kind of put it in tiers there, Oklahoma, Oregon, probably be last on my list. Then I'd look at uh, Notre Dame would probably be last as well in that bottom group. Texas has the quarterbacks, but I don't know about Texas. It's been 15 years. Miami's been 20 years. I think LSU is the obvious choice because the last three coaches have all won national championships. I think Brian Kelly's a better coach than the last two. Uh, I think coming out of the SEC actually does help you um, as opposed to trying to come out of the ACC or the Big 12 or the fact that you'll have more opportunities in the SEC. You'll have a tougher schedule that will help you get into the playoff. So I'd probably say Brian Kelly, of the coaches that have moved around or the big brands in college football, which one could have the most success right away or, or win that championship first? I'd say Brian Kelly. But I'm also pretty high on Mario Cristobal and what Miami's going to do. I think they're going to be somewhat similar to Clemson. I'm not telling you Miami's going to be as good as Clemson, but the fact that you know Clemson had such an advantage because they were bringing in players that the rest of the conference just couldn't. I think Miami will get to that point where they're bringing in guys like they're already kind of doing, that just other teams outside of Clemson in that conference just are not getting. Miami will have a, a talent advantage. Can you turn that into enough wins to go win a championship? We'll see. I do have questions about Cristobal as a Saturday coach. But in terms of recruiting and getting the team ready and getting talent to that building or in that program, I think he's going to do a heck of a job in Miami. You can always join the conversation, 843-721-9500. Arch Manning's obviously going to help bring a lot of talent to Texas as well. That'll help. Let's go to the phones. Gary is with us. Gary, what's going on? How are you? Gary? Ah, uh, no, Gary. He was there. Sounded like he was doing something else. Uh, coming up, Arch Manning, in regards of uh, top-tier quarterbacks and um, how they've worked out and the ripple effect of Arch Manning as well. We'll get to that when we come back in regards to college football. It's the more Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Spin lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. You're talking coaches most likely to win their first national championship. I think Ryan Day would be number one, but he didn't change teams, right? We were looking last segment at, of the coaches that just changed teams in the last year and a half now, if you want to include Texas with Sarkeesian. Uh, Ryan Day, I would say, would be number one for the best chance he could uh, do it this year. They're one of the favorites. And then I'd probably put Brian Kelly next after that. i give Kelly the best chance of the new coaches this offseason. Followed by probably Lincoln Riley would be third on my list. Mario Cristobal then after that. And somewhere you'd have to slide in Harbaugh as well at Michigan. But I think that's an uphill battle to actually go win a national championship. Hey, you can always join the conversation, 843-721-9500 to give us a call. Let's give Gary another chance. Gary, you with us? What's up, Blue? Hey, Gary, how are you? What's going on? I'm hungry, man. Hungry? <laughs> Why do you think that the guy at Southern Cal, he's never won anything. 
No, not yet. He's, he came close at Oklahoma. I think the advantage, though, to Southern Cal. When did he come close at Oklahoma? Well, they made it to the playoff a couple of times. But he didn't come close. Alabama beat his brains out. We beat his brains out. Well, getting there, you know, he was one of the top four programs in college football. I think that's pretty close. At least have yeah, a chance. Yeah, only had to play one team, Texas. Yeah, well, now at USC, he'll have the advantage, the similar advantage, where he'll be in a weak conference, so they'll have an easier path to get to the playoff. But the difference to me between USC and Oklahoma is that you have California to choose from, and I think, as we've already seen, you'll have the backing of USC to get guys in the transfer portal or name, image, likeness, that I think he could bring in better talent out there than at Oklahoma. So not only do you have the easier path, but then once you get to that playoff, maybe he'll have a better chance to compete than he did at Oklahoma out at USC, kind of like Pete Carroll did, you know, 15 years ago. Okay. So Pete that, Carroll cheated good, so you think he could cheat as well? Well, see, the difference now is well, you don't – You really don't have to cheat. Man. Right, exactly. That's the difference. Whatever Pete Carroll was doing, Lincoln Riley can do it now, except he could get away. It could be – it's it's normal. So that could uh, be an advantage to him as well. Because that's why I think Miami will be the first one. Because, because uh, they got the money, right? And they got Florida has got as many football players coming out of it as any state. Um, so that's who I think will do it. Yeah, and I'm big on Cristobal and Miami. Appreciate the call, Gary. Um, I think they're both very similar in the sense that both can recruit without getting on a plane. Right, you can get all your players from California if you want. You can get all your players from South Florida if you want, or throughout Florida. Both are in bad conferences that if you're USC, I mean, right now your biggest threat is Utah, who has never been to the playoff. And if you're Miami, of course, biggest threat is Clemson, and we'll see if uh, Clemson gets back to competing for national championships. And then also the third part, too, is uh, that they both have that tradition, that USC was running the sport 15 years ago. Miami was running the sport 20 years ago. So they've both done it before these programs have. And then if you want to say the fourth uh, similarity or advantage is, yeah, the money. Miami, uh, they're, uh, they got all sorts of money. We've seen that. They always have. USC, same idea. And they both got in trouble when they were dominating the sport. They both got in trouble because, you know, Nevin Shapiro was a donor giving money for Miami, and Pete Carroll was doing things at USC with uh, Reggie Bush. Now you could do that and not get in trouble for it. And so I guess that's another advantage, but also similarity between those two. So I could see that, right, why you would like Mario at, at Miami, but I think also USC kind of has those same advantages or same things going for them. I'm big on Cristobal. Clemson fans may not want to hear it. I don't know if he's going to get to a point where he's competing for national championship at Miami. I don't know, but I think Cristobal is going to do a really good job just upping their game. I think Miami over the next couple of years is going to be a lot better than they have been for the past uh, 15 years. I think that was a good get for them. Uh, he's going to bring in a lot of talent. Can they win enough on the field? We'll see. Can he get to a point where they win a national championship? We'll see. Uh, Brian Kelly's the only one I would realistically probably bet on to actually go win. Because LSU, I mean, they, the last three coaches have all done it. Uh, LSU, he's walking into an opportunity there. And I think Brian Kelly's a really good coach. Mario Cristobal, Lincoln Riley, I give him a chance. They're on my list because somebody has to fill out those spots. But I don't feel as confident about Lincoln Riley or Mario actually topping the SEC and winning a national championship, not at least in the next few years. Brian Kelly's the one that I would be willing – I'll bet that today that Brian Kelly won a national championship at LSU. I feel co really confident about that, not as confident about really any of the other coaches. But if I had to order them, yeah, Miami, Lincoln Riley, they'd be up there. They'd probably be the next ones. Like I said, Brian Kelly would probably be number one, Lincoln Riley, and then Mario Cristobal.
843-721-9500. Let's go back to the phones. Jim is with us. Jim, what's going on? How are you? I listen to you two. You two offset each other very well. It's very enjoyable. But I got to give you a little synopsis on a couple things, if you don't mind. Sure. Getting your hair cut, you don't get it cut wet. When you have someone clean your house, you pick up your underwear and everything else around the house before they come in and clean the house. You don't cut it wet. You don't want them to cut your hair wet because they don't know what it's like when it's just standing there. You want to cut the loose ends. And a barber, go to a respectable, well-known barber like I go in Mount Pleasant, and you have a barber that's been around a few years, but you don't go to them at 6 o'clock at night. You might have arthritis, and you never know. So you get them at about the second or third person there. That's what I do. Every month, you schedule yourself month in advance. It'll be good for you because you're last-minute last Charlie there, okay? So you get them scheduled there. But here's the big thing. You go a half hour early. You watch and see what he's doing. Good conversation. You find everything that, that's going on in Mount Pleasant at the barbershop. And after the barbershop, you sit down and you listen a little bit more. So I make it a two-hour affair, and you have a good time at the barbershop. Now, as far as the three sports, the guy coming on after you, I don't want to mention any names, but a radio show, I witnessed three sports that he's horrible at. The only one he's good at is Crown and Coke. He's the best in the world. Basketball, I played against him. Indoor gym. Ever German would choke from free throw line to free throw line. He wouldn't go under the basket. That guy that had the show next to you, he would go under the basket, but he's not tall enough. So everybody hit him in the head, possibly with the ball because he got white hair. So uh, that wasn't any good. And I guarded him. And he, he's easy to guard because he doesn't do anything. Just stand underneath there. Now, as far as far as golf, he's horrible, absolutely horrible. But I'm just as bad, so I can't comment about that. And the last thing out, throwing the first pitch out, what you commented about. Here you have Ray Tanner, and you have you have they're playing the Citadel down at Riley Park, and he's going to throw out the first pitch. Do you think you'd warm up a little bit? Don't get on the rubber at the top. You can't throw sixty feet, and it bounces two bounces to the catcher. The most embarrassing thing, and he has a Gamecock hat on. Ray Tanner told him, don't wear the hat again once you're going to throw out the first pitch. That's my true stories to all the matter. <laughs> well, I appreciate it, Jim, as always. Not the greatest stories to be told about your uh, about one's athleticism prowess. We'll wrap up. Uh, hey, unfortunately, my pickup basketball game got canceled tonight because we play outdoors. Otherwise, I would love to have Bobby, everybody from the building come along. We'll wrap up your uh, Wednesday when we come back. Some more Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. Wrapping up your Wednesday and the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. If you ever miss anything from the show, catch on demand. Search ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcast. And the podcasts are available online at charlestonsportsradio.com. You can always take the Morrow Midday Show with you where, 
ever you go as well. Stream us online at charlestonsportsradio.com or through TuneIn Radio, your smart speaker, or free app. Search ESPN Charleston in the App Store and download the app. Through the app, you can listen to the show live or on demand from anywhere in the world. ESPN Charleston in the App Store. Appreciate listeners checking in from at least 11 different states and multiple countries here on this Wednesday. Hey, we were talking about Arch Manning earlier and the uh, excitement for Texas for getting a kid like that. You know, what's interesting is if you look at the, the highest-rated quarterback recruits all time, Arch Manning is number one. And you wonder, you know, can he actually live up to the billing? Well, right behind him is um, Vince Young and Quinn Ewers. We'll find out about Quinn Ewers. But Vince Young, as a college quarterback, certainly did live up to expectations. Then the fourth-highest quarterback recruit all time is Trevor Lawrence. I think he met expectations at Clemson. Next is Justin Fields. I thought he worked out in college. Then Brock Berlin at Miami, who wasn't a great NFL uh, quarterback, but did pretty well at Miami. Next, Terrell Pryor at Ohio State had a pretty good college career. Bryce Young is eighth, who just won the Heisman. Matt Barkley, ninth, who had a good college career, did not have a good senior season, hung around too long. And then tenth, Jimmy Clausen, who was decent at Notre Dame. Point being, most of these top-end recruits... It did actually work out pretty well. Justin Fields, Bryce Young, Trevor Lawrence, Vince Young. Now we'll see about Quinn Ewers and Arch Manning. But I can see why Texas fans are excited. Hey, life is a series of hellos and goodbyes. But now we have to say goodbye. We'll say hello again tomorrow at noon. More Midday Show on ESPN Radio.